The following is a conversation with Craig Jones, Nikki Rod, and Nikki Ryan, who together with Ethan Krellenston and others make up the B team, a legendary jiu-jitsu team here in Austin, Texas. It was formed after the so-called Donaher Death Squad, the team headed by John Donaher, split up into New Wave Jiu-Jitsu and B Team Jiu-Jitsu, both located here in Austin, Texas. There has been a lot of trash talk back and forth, including accusations of greasing and steroid use. And I, as a practitioner and fan of grappling, jiu-jitsu, and martial arts in general, am here for it. To see the best grapplers in history go at it, both on the mat and on Instagram. I like the people on both teams and train with both. And I'm really happy to see the exciting rapid evolution of the sport that these athletes and coaches are catalyzing. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We got better help for mental health, eight sleep for naps, and athletic greens for daily multivitamins. Choose wisely, my friends. And if you want to work with our amazing team, we're always hiring. Go to lexfriedman.com slash hiring. And now onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make this interesting, but if you must skip them, please still check out our sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, spelled H-E-L-P, help. There's that quote from uh, Jack Kerouac, the book on the road that I recently finished reading, rereading, rereading for like, I don't know, the 10th at least time in my life. And there's a quote in there about the mad ones, that the main character, Sal, it's strange how bad my memory is, but something tells me that his last name is Paradise, Sal Paradise and Dean Moriarty. And Sal is uh, Jack Kerouac, and the real-life name of Dean Moriarty, I don't remember, but the character name is Dean Moriarty, and he represents sort of the the weird, the crazy, the, the chaotic friend, shaman, guide through life, the drop of poison in a perfectly calm drink or a perfectly calm pond or town, like Tom Waits says. Anyway, those people and that part of ourselves is really powerful, that weirdness, that darkness, that chaos. But you have to have control of it, I think. I think being self-aware and introspective about that and bringing it to the surface and knowing that that part of you exists. Check them out at betterhelp.com slash Lex and save on your first month. This episode is also brought to you by 8sleep and it's Pod 3 Mattress. As I record these very words, it is extremely late at night. It has been a long night before then and a long day. And the thing that carries me through is a beautiful power nap uh, or a couple of those when I'm uh, deprived on sleep because of various curveballs that life throws at me as it does for everybody. I think uh, I at least maintain my sanity and my well-being by taking power naps. Sometimes I'll actually drink a coffee right before the nap and I take that nap and about 30 minutes after I pop up all refreshed, ready to go. Not like now, 
actually physically, mentally, spiritually refreshed. Now I'm more calm and zen, ready to take on the darkness that waits for me when I finally close my eyes and I'm laying on that eight sleep bed <laughs> as I'm ready to uh, very soon. It is a source of happiness for me, a cold bed with a warm blanket. It's a peaceful escape from the chaos of life outside. It's a weird little feature of biology that we get to sleep. And it, that is both necessary and it's just wonderful. <laughs> anyway, check it out and get special savings when you go to 8sleep.com slash Lex. This show is also brought to you by Athletic Greens and it's AG1 Drink, which is an all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. It is delicious. I've drank it twice today. Uh, because I'm traveling, I packed a few travel packs to go with me, like little travel companions that represent home. And then I get to the hotel and I unpack it, and that's a little reminder, a little habit that I get to carry with me that represents home. That makes me feel like I'm at home. Because what is home after all? But a set of habits and a set of people that bring joy to our lives. And a set of habits that bring joy. And Athletic Greens is that. It brings joy to my life. Above all the nutritional excellence it does for me, above all of that, it just makes me happy. A lot of things in my life make me happy. This is one of the consistent ones. They'll give you one month supply of fish oil, one of the only supplements I take, uh, when you sign up at athleticgreens.com slash Lex. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Craig Jones, Nikki Rod, and Nikki Ryan. Craig, can you introduce everyone? Yep, so we got Nikki Rod here, brown belt, two-time ADCC silver medalist. Mm -hmm. Nikki Ryan here. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> and I'm Craig Jones, also two-time ADCC silver medalist. Silver medalist, so the number one loser. Number one loser. And maybe a little bit more, your bio says, widely known as the Black Belt Slayer, hails from New Jersey, the land of pizza and biceps. Uh, yes, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> okay. You uh, also do carry a gun on you a lot? Yeah, I keep I keep it keep it loaded, you know, yeah. keep it on me. Uh-huh. You have one today? Uh in the car. That was a mistake. That was your first mistake. Yeah, I think you're too <laughs> close. <laughs> Very uncomfortable. <laughs> uh and you are Nikki Ryan. What else is there? What else do we know? Gordon uh, Ryan's brother. Gordon Ryan's brother. <laughs> I was waiting for that one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So and you're all together, uh part of the leadership of the the B team here in Austin. Mm -hmm. Let's just get out some introductory questions. What in general accomplishment of the things you mentioned are you most proud of? I mean, I'm proud just to not have to work a full-time job just to get by on the bullshit I've done so far. Yeah. Honestly. Just making money of a thing you love. Exactly, yeah. When was the first time you made money on a thing you love? Oh, probably a jujitsu tournament. I think maybe in Abu Dhabi where I won a thousand dollars. Thought I was rich. Yeah, yeah. What'd you spend that thousand dollars on? 
probably something bad, probably drugs or something at the time. Maybe mm-hmm. blew it at the after party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good introduction to Craig. So what, what about you? When's the first time you made money with, on jiu-jitsu? Or what, what's actually stepping back, like what's the thing you're most proud of? Is it a similar kind of thing? I think uh, I think I'm most proud of is uh, I mean for sure two ADCC silver medals, which hurts because you're so close to getting that gold. But uh, you know it takes time. Uh, I'm understanding that you know sport of jiu-jitsu takes quite a while to be at the tip top to be the absolute best. So uh, and I'm just being consistent in my training and my craft, and you know get that number one spot one day. What failure or loss is the most painful to you? I don't know. I could probably have a pretty short term memory. So my losses, I just like, I'll I just forget about them. Uh, yeah. I mean, for sure. Uh, my loss at, at this past ADCC in the finals, you know, that one sung a bit because I definitely thought I, I was going to win. I mean, like it takes a while to produce the skills or the reactions more so that you need to, to have, to be, you know, to be that number one pound for pound guy. Um, and, you know, uh, pre-ADCC, I was coming off an injury, so it took me a little bit to uh, find the right mentality and physicality that I needed in order to, you know, get the wins that required gold. So, yeah, it's just process. Interesting. You keep saying process, like it takes a while to build up. So you're not, like, thinking of a loss, like ADCC is, like, uh, a specific failures. You're not, you haven't gone long enough in a particular process to being a champ. Well, I mean, for me, I'm coming. I'm closing in on five years of specifically jujitsu training. I'm, I'm about about four and a half right now, and um, yeah, I, it's just the uh, you kind you constantly have these ups and downs in training where like as long as you stay consistent, you'll have a gradual raise. But you know, it's still you'll have these uh, peaks and lows, and you know, just just trying to get better every day. I'm I'm definitely not where I will be in in a few years in a few years from now, but I'm striving to get there. Are you actually a brown belt? Or was that a joke? Brown belt, yeah. You're a brown belt. Like, how many stripes? Uh, no stripes. No stripes. Okay. Stripeless. Okay. Is that part of the process that, that you're working through? Part, definitely part of the process. I mean, I think a black belt is just based upon how much knowledge you have. Obviously, like, you know, if you're talking competitive-wise, like, from when I started, I was able to beat most black belts. That's just kind of how I was gifted from my, my wrestling experience. And, uh... You know, the time will come when it's right, but uh, I'm not in a rush at all. I'm, I'm continuing. The, I just kind of take every day for what it is and, and try to improve upon that. I mean, I want to give him the black belt. Nikki Ryan says he's not ready. <laughs> <laughs> what is Are you guys, like, as no gi folks, do you take that seriously? Like the black belt? Or, like, how much does it come into play? Into Yeah, I mean, it's like Nikki Rod said, you know, it's based off of knowledge, um, not just, you know, what you do out on the competition mats. Because, you know, like he said, he had years of wrestling experience and uh, obviously he's very physically gifted. Uh, so we grade based off of the amount of knowledge that you have. Like, how do you measure knowledge? I think teaching is a good measurement of it, like how well you're able to show the moves um, and, you know, really make sure that you have an understanding of what you're doing. Yeah, it's an interesting rank. It's like um, it's something that takes many years to accomplish. And for a lot of people, it's truly meaningful. It's like it represents a particular step in a journey. But for you guys, it's almost like different because you've been so focused on competition that... I guess if you take it seriously, it is a big step for you too. Like as martial artists, that, that that's bigger than just being like top of the world competitors, right? So I thought it was a joke. I, you guys are actually taking it seriously. Like that he's a brown belt. That he's a brown belt, and he's and you're taking seriously the, the rank of black belt, and like it's part of it's part of your journey. I think by the time I get a black belt, I'll I'll be no more pound for pound. I think it'd be pretty. Uh, nice to accomplish that as a brown belt and then maybe toss a black belt on top maybe get promoted on on the podium 
What do you guys, uh, do you love winning or hate losing more? I definitely don't hate losing. If it pays the bills, I don't mind. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, but honestly, if I win, I feel more relief than anything rather than like excitement and stuff. I'm like, oh, fuck, thank God that's over, you know? I, hate, I hate losing for sure, um, but I understand that it's necessary to get, you know, to get to where you want to be. Um, and then winning is like, I mean, what? What I think winning is probably the closest you can think you can get to like heroin or something. Because I mean, we're on a like if you do have extreme success in a, a tournament that you've been you know adamant about training for and and competing in for a while, and you end up winning it. I mean, I feel like you're on that high for days at a time afterwards. Heroin's got to be better. You think so? <laughs> I'm a, I'm gonna stick with no, but. I'm not going to suck dick to win. <laughs> you sucked it for heroin? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess that's a good point, yeah. But you know, like, uh, because you, you you come from a little bit of the uh, wrestling culture, one of the things I really love is at the end of the match when they lose, they just, there's no, they just run off. They're yeah. like almost pissed off. It's like some mixture of anger and frustration at themselves. I think, I think sometimes that people like freak out on the mat. And I think that's just a, to show everybody like a they're acting like they cared a lot and really maybe they didn't work uh, enough to, to, you know, get to where they want to where they expected to be and they lost. And then they had this big boost of emotion, like after their, after their loss. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think you just cry in the mirror and not to everybody else, you know? <laughs> um, what have you ever cried watching a movie? I don't think I've ever cried period. Okay. Have you cried watching a movie? Not what? yet. Not yet. The, the notebook i try to avoid those movies. actually i lie actually titanic the last part of a difficult wake up for me is i try to find a sad movie and at least cry about a pound out <laughs> that really gets me over the line low energy cutting <laughs> the tears <laughs> um there's other following uh liquids i could talk to you about but let's just let's just, <laughs> let's just continue on low energy <laughs> what uh um what about you nikki uh love of winning versus hate of losing i'm a very competitive person so i for sure hate losing more than i like winning uh i i do think it's something that's kind of held me back over the uh the past few years because uh it, it makes it so that I'm not as active as I should be because it's like I really hate that feeling of, you know, after a match that you just lost. Uh, so it kind of prevents me from competing. So it's definitely something I need to work past. So like when you think about a competition, the possibility of losing, which is always there in competition, is the thing that like weighs heavy on you in, in the months and weeks leading up to it. Yeah, my whole life, you know, my financial stability, everything depends on, you know, my ability to go out there and compete and my ability to teach. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a huge hit to the brand if you lose. So, you know, leading up to matches, that's, that's definitely something that's in my mind. I know. So you guys are like world-class athletes, but for me, more like a hobbyist competitor, I compete a lot. The thing I was, uh, cause I really wanted to win. The thing I was probably most afraid of was not just losing, but like embarrassing myself. Yeah. Even, even actually winning by stalling. That was the thing I hated the most about myself in terms of crying in the mirror. <laughs> is like being too afraid yeah. to take risks after I'm up on two points or something. I think yeah, you got to, sure. in competition, sometimes it's good to take the emotion out of it. It's too easy sometimes to like uh, think about, oh, my girls in, in, in the crowd, my family's watching, like I want to win because they're there. Uh, but at the highest level, if you're emotional at all, no, that's affecting you. Yeah, that's tough though. <laughs> that, that's tough especially like leading up to it, when you're on the map maybe but leading up to it 
I think it's okay to be emotional prior. Like, you know, if we know ADCC or is coming up and we have a big match, like definitely I'll go out in in practice and I'll I'll visualize, I'll put myself in that competition. That way when it's game time, it's like I've been there a thousand times already. So not the actual competition, but even leading up to it, like stepping on the mat, like all the walk walk towards it, all that? All that stuff. Like I'll do the same exact warm up for weeks on end and t- uh, until my competition day comes. That's way, that way, you know, when I compete, I'm just like, oh, it's, it's another Tuesday at practice. Uh, what about you, Craig? How, how do you prepare mentally for a tournament like ADCC? I push it completely out of my mind. Don't even think about it. Try to avoid any visualization, any rituals, warm ups, anything like that. Block it out until the last second. Yeah. Try not to think about it. I just go to training to have fun, learn a bit. So I try to approach competition the exact same way. I don't warm up at uh, training, do very little warm up for competition. Uh huh. And uh, you, you just step on the mat. Step on the mats. My philosophy is there's no warm ups on the street. <laughs> We're so vastly different. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so you like legit don't warm up. No, I probably should now. I'm 31, but I would just like in the gym, take it easy the first round. You know, like if I look around the room and Nikki Ryan's there, I might go, all right, we'll have an easier first round yeah. today. Jump <laughs> uh, so even for like the most high stakes matches, you try to push it out. Yeah, I didn't even think about it. What about like all the social like Instagram posts you have to do about that match? You just make a joke out of it and kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's actually... kind of pretty silly, you know, which is wrestling each other you know yeah. we put the meaning into it but to someone that doesn't follow the sport it looks stupid well all of human existence is pretty silly like what are we doing none of us really know what's going on we kind of have sex to reproduce we get hungry we eat and then we're all chasing money and cars and whatever the hell in, in a capitalist society or we worship a dictator in a authoritarian regime yeah and then we get off on we let power abuse us and then we just murder others because we get off on it yeah. And then eventually all of us will die because the sun will run out of energy. Because colonizing other planets is very difficult. So none of it matters. It's a good uh, good philosophy. It's pretty pretty good. Uh, <laughs> That's exactly what How I was does thinking. the sun run out of energy? <laughs> <laughs> well, you caught me there. <laughs> uh, it's, it's burn out. It's like a, it's a nuclear fusion engine that eventually burns out. Like when you get tired of training. Yeah. It's never happened. <laughs> I try to get tired. I was like, dude, it's not, it's not working. <laughs> All right. Cool, cool. So you legit don't care about losing. It doesn't weigh heavy on you. I try not to list. Like if I win, I try to block out all the compliments, all the niceties and stuff. So I try to do the same with losing. It's happened. Move on to the next one, you know? Don't dwell on it too much. And sometimes make a joke out of it. Yeah, exactly. Winning or losing, with the right joke, we can make money off of the event that's just transpired. <laughs> yeah. That's what's most important. Excellent. Thank you. I have a bunch of your merch. Oh, nice. Get... This one's the Jordan Burroughs ripoff. <laughs> uh, all I see is silver. The way pronounced Burroughs is, is very, is very, very sexy. Okay. Um, <laughs> I you... throw lines at people and I try to gauge their reaction. Like sometimes I'll say something to Nikki and I'll be like, all right, that's probably crossing the line. You know yeah. what I mean? We'll tone it down awesome. to the public. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So it's not just right. You have to think is this crossing the line. Yeah, yeah. I get as close to it as possible. Yeah. I feel like you can't really and then cross, cross it. it just just a little bit. Just a little bit, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh <laughs> you said that I'm Switzerland in World War II, since I'm friends with both you and Gordon and yep. John. Uh, Very rich country. Are you a Hitler or a Stalin, by the way, in this analogy? 
would you like to be Hitler or Stalin? And should you make a t-shirt out of it or? I mean, a I think, Nazi t-shirt, I don't know how well that sells. You know? I think it would, you know, I think that, <laughs> let's brainstorm on this one offline. <laughs> and I think since Hitler lost, so you got second place in World War II. That's I think, true, that's I true. I think that makes you Hitler. Anyway, uh, in, to the degree that you can, can you tell the story of how the time you've had with the, the Donahar Death Squad and, and uh, why you split up? I competed against Gordon for ADCC and the EBI in 2017. And I remember I competed against him at ADCC and then we had the EBI event. And then I had a Kasai. I, was, I, compete, I used to compete all the time, every week. I wouldn't even do the preparation or anything. I'd just be like trying to do seminars, make money, and then jump in and compete. I remember I showed up to Kasai after I faced him twice. And there were like four locker rooms and they put me with all the DDS guys. It was just me and all of DDS. And I think we competed the week weekend before. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was going to be super awkward, but it was actually it was actually pretty chill. And the Kasai was in New York and they suggested to come train that week. So I came trained, hung out with them a bit. Uh, ultimately, the goal was to move to America and join a bigger team just because that flight to Australia is death. Australia is so far away from everywhere. It's kind of like not realistic to base yourself in Australia when all the tournaments are in America. And then I went and trained with the guys and they just had a massive, uh, massively deep talent pool in that room. Like show up to like a, meant to be 7 a.m., actual 8 a.m. class uh, on Brazilian time. And there'd be like a hundred people in there, maybe, I don't know how many black belts, but a ton of elite guys. And I was coming from Australia, um, training with Lachlan Giles. But really that room was pretty shallow and like most people had serious jobs and stuff. So it was like basically me just training with Lachlan, maybe a couple of other guys, and then to go to New York and have access to a, a wide array of training partners and guys that are training twice each day. I feel like that's what you really need. You need people that can train as much as you are. Work you get together. humbled? Humbled? You get humbled in that room at first? For sure. Because my style at the time was basically a rip-off version of what they were doing. Yeah, Leg locks came in. I remember just watching Eddie Cummings nonstop and just seeing this guy rip people's legs off. And I was like, you know what? That's probably a good move. You know, that looks like an easier path to victory than trying to beat these guys at what, they, what they're good at already, you know? My philosophy at the time was if it's bothering old Brazilians, yeah. it's bothering them for a reason. Yeah. It's probably effective. And that's the path I took to sort of try to rip off their moves and then obviously to go into that room, try to do them to them it's gonna be a bit more difficult. All right, so that's how it started. H how did you end up here? How do we end up here? We're in Austin, Texas. I mean, I like to think of Puerto Rico as apocalypse now. Mm -hmm. John Danaher as Colonel Kurtz. Things got very weird in the jungle and the teams went in two different directions. But honestly, I mean, it's not really my story to tell. I had some uh, issues with some of those people. At the time of the split, I got along very well with John. I feel like me and him connected very well. I don't know why that was. Maybe it was just because of the he missed home. He missed a familiar accent, Australian, New Zealand accent. Uh, but, I mean, I basically followed Nikki, yeah. left with Nikki. Sort of that core group of guys left with Nikki. And, I mean, I just backed. There was personal problems, and I just backed Nikki, basically. Got it just sticking on you for a bit. Is there a part of you that, you know, finds it heartbreaking that DDS split up? Does part of you miss working with John and everybody? 
Like, can you steal me on the case for that? I mean, I miss certain aspects of it, but I also do prefer the freedom of being apart from it. It's obviously a very strict regime under John Danaher. You know, obviously there's parts of it. I miss the parts the, the public doesn't see of John, the behind the scenes banter. I feel like he's very conscious of the image he portrays to the world, but basically at closed doors, he's always making jokes, always finding, I guess, more in line with the Australian Kiwi sort of culture. Mm-hmm. But you don't really see that in the public eye. So that perspective, I do miss that relationship with John. In terms of setting aside personal differences, Gordon was a good training partner, definitely a good training partner to train with. Uh, but obviously the negative things we can't really talk about outweighed all of those things. And we obviously had to make a decision to leave. The but things yeah, that happened in the jungle. The things that happened in the jungle. Shall never I, be spoken of. That I personally... Mm-hmm. Cannot speak of. Yeah, but obviously I do miss certain aspects. Like, I mean, not nothing's all bad. Nothing's all good, you know? Yeah, this goes back to your, like, uh, everything we're doing is silly. Yeah, exactly. That's why I don't get people to take it so serious, martial arts so serious. It's just, it's just pretty stupid, really. Especially in the gi, it looks just... It looks bad, and then I mean, it's pretty silly with with and without the gi. It's just a bunch look, of apes. What's silly around. about no gi, and what's silly about the gi, and just mixed and matched bottoms there? You know what I mean? Wait, which one? Sambo. Oh, so, yeah. oh, I see what you're doing, brother. <laughs> <laughs> you come to my house and offend my people. All right, uh, <laughs> this is we're gonna go to every dark place, apparently. Um, Nick, how did you get with uh, DDS? Like, what was that journey like? Is there, uh, try to see if there's things that you remember fondly that, that you've uh, gotten from the experience. All right. So the way I started, um, training with DDS, um, initially I was training for like, well, initially I was, I was a bouncer, right? I was, I dropped out of college to pursue this, uh, fitness modeling career. I ended up signing with a Wilhelmina models up in New York. And I was like, trying try to get in better shape. And while I was bouncing kind of the talk of like, you know, who's tougher came up between the wrestlers and a few of the bouncers that train jujitsu. And, uh, you know, they convinced Great. me to go to a practice and, and I went to my first practice over there and, uh, I, for the most part, I just controlled everybody, got on top of them, was able to avoid like kind of like, you know, shitty submissions because I, I had I had an awareness of, of the sport and, and you know, I'm, I'm a fan of fighting and whatnot. So, um, you know, I kind of understood it pretty well. Um, and then soon after that, I joined a school and my second week of jujitsu, I started competing had pretty good success you know I, I was like subbing a few black belts and beating everybody like you know pretty decisively with points and stuff and uh, about three months into training locally i got connected with uh gordon gordon ryan and john danaher up in new york and i started i committed to you know make the drive up there as many days as i could at the at the time i lived in south jersey and it was about two and a half hour three hour drive without traffic to Wait, new york to where new- where in south jersey gloucester county um Clayton, New Jersey specifically, but Gloucester County. Yeah. So it was about, it was about, about 130 miles and without traffic, you know, about two, two and a half hours or so. But on the way back, man, we, it'd be three plus sometimes, you know, you're catching that rush hour. What year was this? Do you remember? This that was, was in 2018. For a bit. I forget how young you are. Yeah. I was there before, <laughs> before all that. All right, cool. Uh, anyway, you're doing the long drive and then, and then. And then what? Yeah, doing the long drive. And then, uh, you know, once I won ADCC trials, I was able to make a couple bucks. And then, you know, I got my silver medal at ADCC and I 
was able to afford to live up there in New York and in, in North Jersey area. So I lived up there, trained there full time every day, and uh, you know just kind of sucked with the team throughout throughout the turbulent times and found ourselves in Austin, in the jungle, in the jungle. Yeah, the things we, we shall not speak of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what uh, what other uh, things that you remember that you learned from John Donaher from your time you spent with him? Yeah, I mean, I definitely learned a ton from uh, from John and the team as a whole. Like, uh, you know, it's you have to be the guy that asks questions in in the ty- type of environment, right? Because there's not, it's not, you're not going to get singled out to be that specific uh, like star or the, the the best guy in the room when you have all these other you know stud athletes. So I really had to seek out and and figure out the kind of questions that I needed to ask. And um, once I w- became a bit more verbal with my training, and, and you know, uh, I I'm showing, I'm, I'm I'm expressing all my curiosities about grappling to these guys. Definitely help boost my uh, boost my technique and my career as a whole. Yeah, did you understand what kind of stuff, like technically, you want to get good at? What fits your body? What, like, what would be good for you? What, what are your weaknesses and all that? So initially, and when I started grappling, I had an innate ability to just get to opponents' back. So I was like, all right, I, I'm good at getting to the back. Let me get, let me perfect controlling the back and then submitting opponent via rear naked choke. Um, and then besides that, I really focused on leg lock defense. And then eventually came the body lock pass where, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm really good at body lock passing my opponents now. And, the, and um, yeah, it just takes a quite a long time because you have to find uh, different sequences. And then there's always these, uh, uh, an abundance of opportunities that your opponent gets from these specific sequences. So it takes a while. Is there part of you that finds the fact that uh, DGS split up heartbreaking? Um, I definitely, you know, having one person to go to that runs practice every day that's, you know, consistent, um, it, it was definitely it was definitely definitely a gift. But now I'm also gifted with uh, many, many other partners. I have Nikki Ryan, um, you know, Craig Jones, <laughs> Ethan. <laughs> Craig Jones. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have Ethan Krellestein, yeah. Damian Anderson. So a full team of knowledgeable athletes that I can continue to go to with uh, multiple questions. But yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, it took me some time to adjust to to training or to learning from you know uh, specifically my team and not just one person. We should mention for people just listening because you can't visually see that Nikki Ryan is currently terrified, <laughs> and Craig Jones is currently enjoying the fact that Nikki Ryan is terrified. But anyway, uh, can you talk about your uh, Nikki? Can you talk about your time with DDS? I started training when I was like around thirteen. Um, you know, my brother Gordon had started prior to me, and uh, I really just went into training just as like a means to exercise and lose weight at the beginning because I was pretty fat as a kid. So I went to the first class, loved it, uh, and then just started training every day at uh, at Gary's Gym, Brunswick. And then during the summer, when I'd get off from school, they would take me up to New York to uh, to train under John. And, you know, I just absolutely loved it. I knew what I wanted to do with my life at a young age. So I ended up dropping out of school, actually, after my, my freshman year in high school. So, yeah, at 15, I ended up dropping out and just pursuing jiu-jitsu full-time, uh, you know, training every day up in the uh, the blue basement. Like, what aspect of jiu-jitsu was, um, made you know that this is the thing for you? It was just something I just enjoyed being, you know, like, on the mats every day. I love that there's, you know, a problem-solving aspect to it. Um, so it's, you know, it's mentally challenging, it's physically challenging, uh, helps me get in shape. So I just, yeah, right off the bat, I, I knew I loved it. Okay. So, uh, then we'll go to the jungle. What happened in the jungle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in general, like, uh, 
<laughs> I like this. I like this. This, this is just like this like shroud of mystery that she'll never be penetrated. <clears throat> that should never be like. Uh, We've got a book deal. It's coming one day. Book deal. <laughs> yeah, right. Obviously, he left high school. He's not writing it. Right <laughs> uh, okay. I'll do the Russian translation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what are what are things that uh, you enjoy that you remember from working with John Donahue? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously he's considered one of the best coaches in the world. Um, you know, very charismatic guy when you see him in person. Uh, you know, I, I pretty much was, you know, kind of raised in the DDS. You know, that's where I spent the, the majority of my time every day. Uh, so I obviously had very deep connections, you know, with John, my brother, uh, Gary, um, you know, even Eddie Cummings and stuff back then. Um, so obviously I miss interacting with those guys every day. And, uh, you know, it's like they said, it's, it's good to have somebody to kind of crack the whip at you every day. Uh, and John, John was very good at that. When you're like younger in your teenage years, you can kind of, you like have to get humbled, right? There's like a process to that. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, it's a pretty good room to get humbled in, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I was, uh, I started training with them just when like everybody started to break out. Gary was like the biggest name at the time, uh, just cause he had 180 CC trials already. And, uh, he had a crazy match with Kron at, uh, Kron Gracie at, yeah. at, uh, ADCC. But Eddie was just starting to break out. Gordon just started winning EBI. So I, I started training under John, you know, right when, when everything was exploding. What are the good things about life, about jujitsu you learned from your brother? Both me and my brother never really wanted to, you know, work a full-time job doing something that we hate. Um, and he was always, you know, a very confident person. So he just went, you know, full, fully started pursuing jiu-jitsu. Um, so I'm very happy that, you know, he did that. And I ended up following in his footsteps because you can ask these guys, I'm a lazy sack of shit out of, mm -hmm. <laughs> out, outside of the, the, uh, the mat. Uh, so that's, that's definitely one thing that uh, I'm very grateful for. That he paved the way, like you can you can make money doing stuff you love. Yeah, exactly. And he was he was a big reason, you know, why my parents uh, eventually let me drop out of school because you know when when they were coming up, there was there's no money in the sport. It was very hard to make a full living. Like if you wanted to actually make a living, you'd eventually have to transfer to MMA. And I feel like Gordon and, and Gary and those guys were you know some of the first people to make a very good living off of just jujitsu. At this part of you find it heartbreaking that you've split up from DDS, but also from your brother in terms of spending time in the mat every day. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, growing up, you know, obviously he's, he's my big brother. I, I looked up to him a lot. Uh, so I definitely, like I said, I miss interacting with those guys. I was pretty much raised, you know, in that blue basement, you know, that John was like, you know, a father figure to me. Um, so I definitely, you know, miss, miss seeing those guys every day. Do you have animosity towards Gordon? And does he have animosity toward you? And uh, what is the source of that? And do you think you'll ever be able to forgive each other? Definitely initially during the, uh, the initial split, we, we definitely hated each other at the beginning. Um, but it's definitely started to, uh, to calm down. Actually, just prior to, you know, all this social media drama that's going on currently, <laughs> he, reached, <laughs> he had reached out to me. And that was literally like the first time that we have actually talked since... Uh, since the split happened. So we didn't talk to each other for, what is it now, like almost two years. Um, and that was the first time that, you know, we, we interacted again. And um, overall, you know, he wasn't, you know, aggressive towards me. I wasn't aggressive towards him. You we were cracking some jokes. So hopefully the, the animosity is going down. Well, there's this uh, Godfather quote that I wrote down. <laughs> I recently rewatched it. 
from uh, from the Don, from Don Corleone, uh, Vito Corleone. The strength of a family, like the strength of an army, lies in its loyalty to each other. Is there some aspect of family that you miss? Of yeah. the blood that kind of connects you, that you can count on? Yeah, my parents, you know, they, they both raised us that, you know, like family is everything. You never, you know, betray your family or anything like that. Uh, so I definitely, you know, miss him from time to time. Okay, imagine you're like 40 years from now, sitting on a porch with a shotgun, drinking whiskey, looking over like all the land you've conquered. Uh, looking back to this moment, is the reason you split up a bullshit reason? Or um, is it a good reason? From the perspective of the king who has now conquered the lands, have proven himself, have done everything. I think it was definitely like a justifiable reason for the team splitting. Like it just, with the way things were going, it just was not going to work with, you know, all of us in the same room together. Uh, it was a, started, you know, affecting training. People didn't feel comfortable and things. Uh, so I definitely think that it was a, a justifiable reason to split. The things that happen in the jungle. <laughs> yeah. To be told about in the book. <laughs> is it going to be an audiobook or is it just going to be? A... And who's going to voice it? Might be a play. <laughs> a musical? Yeah, musical. <laughs> on Broadway. Um, how's your singing voice? Mine's not so good, but Nikki has a beautiful voice. Does he? <laughs> of an angel? Like a bet. <laughs> okay. Speaking of the, the social media drama, I should mention that I've talked to recently to Gordon a bunch. Uh, I've talked to him about talking to you guys. And he's had nothing but really nice things to say about you, Nick Ryan. And he has had nothing but bad things. What What was some of the things? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, well, let's, let's just go to the social media first. Because <laughs> the, the social media stuff that he said publicly is just like a warm-up. It's like uh, foreplay, I guess. So Gordon sent you, Nick Rod flowers for valentine's day uh posting on instagram quote i've been fucking him in every round and competition since we met in uh, 2018 the least i can do is buy him flowers we uh, didn't get the flowers now <laughs> yeah did you, that was the question <laughs> did you get the flowers you never he got said, the flowers he sent it to the wrong address he did yeah where, where do you think he sent it it was close, but it was wrong. Did you appreciate the romantic gesture? I did. I was looking forward to the flowers and potentially chocolates in there. But, uh, you know, it was a bit of a letdown. <laughs> uh, can you describe your recent match against Gordon, uh, the EBI match? Okay, so EBI match on UFC Fight Pass. It was a 20-minute match. And uh, immediately, uh, you know, match starts. I pull guard. And then I stand up, he pulls guard. And we have this uh, kind of like back and forth where he's trying to dig for underhooks, trying to get on top of me, and he can't really have, find success. Uh, and out, and and then in the midst of me trying to work my body lock pass, uh, Gordon's able to underhook a leg, and we end up in a leg entanglement. And then I'm able, I'm able to transfer that leg entanglement to a 50-50 position, still, leg, still in the leg entanglement. Uh, from that 50-50 position, I'm able to uh, separate his feet and, and actually get a few pops in any actually said I broke his foot in that exchange with a toehold the toehold yep and uh you know after after that uh, um we had a a bit more I was I was just being uh working on top position trying to get my body lock time runs out and we go to overtime in overtime can you hold on a second yep. actually what does it mean to break a leg was I was very confused about okay is, so is this like a expression or what do you mean what what do you broke what which part breaks in a toehold okay so in a toehold uh there's a few different 
grades of it. Like you could get a a few pops and have some have some you know walking issues, um, and people consider that a break. And then you could break it fully and have your foot be like a, a limp noodle. You know, I think what, well, what goes we'll Achilles? Well, is the front of the Achilles or something? I mean, probably the ligaments. I mean, it's funny. Like a lot of people say they broke something, but like yeah. to me, you break bones, you tear ligaments. So I would imagine you probably had a grade three tear. Grade three. How hard do you think is it? To, I always wondered that with um, with like a straight footlock. How hard is it to break the shin or like the actual bones versus to tear stuff? Depends how many steroids they're on, <laughs> and obviously how much you're on. You're one of the few guys that have actually broken bones in competition. Uh, yeah, have I? Oh yeah, Vin. a couple. Yeah. Uh, which bone did you break? A spiral fracture of the fibula. Very a specific. lot of power right there. <laughs> <laughs> Is it like a twisting? How did you break it? Oh, it was a heel hook. Vinny always used to say heel hooks don't work. Leg locks don't work. But unfortunately, age gets the best of all of us. I think he had some mileage on those ligaments. Yeah. And the bone, I guess, yeah. So it's actually what, the the bone? Yeah, his ankle like disconnected from the tibia and the fibula, but the fibula definitely snapped pretty bad there. That's fascinating. The dynamics of that. Okay, anyway, it went until overtime. What happened in overtime? Okay, uh, what happened in overtime? Let's see. Trying to hang. Oh, okay. I go defense first. Uh, whistle blows. I'm able to escape in like 17 seconds. And then immediately after, I go on his back, and he gets out in exactly 17 seconds. I'm like, shit, all right. I thought I had a good start. And then uh, he gets on my back right after that, and uh, he's able to ride me out for pretty much the entire round. After that, he, uh, I go back on his back. He escapes in maybe like a minute and some change. Uh, I think where I went wrong in the overtime is I should have went. I should have been less adamant about chasing the submission and more aware of uh, collecting time. If I kind of uh, diverted my attention towards acquiring, you know, time on the clock, it would have been, you know, more in my favor. But yeah, uh, at the end of my. Uh, Overtime round, able, I'm able to lock up a rear naked choke over the face, but there just wasn't enough time to fully finish. You know, I got a few seconds of squeeze in there. I didn't have enough uh, time to adjust. And go ahead. <laughs> Do you think if you're on steroids, you would have finished the choke? I yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure, for sure. That's what I, mean, I thought. If say. you're on gear, it, you're you're changing the biology of your body. Right? You're <laughs> you're adjusting your DNA for sure. If I adjust in my DNA, I mean. Uh, yeah. It's a finish. Easy so you're finish. implying you're a natural athlete is what you said. Oh, I'm definitely a natural athlete, yeah. Heavy implication. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh so for people who don't know the the EBI rules, it's an interesting rule structure where the overtime you put yourself in a in like the worst possible position and the task is to escape and then the other person gets the same thing. Um uh, what do you guys think about that rule set? I I like it just because I, first of all, I don't I don't like the idea of having to put somebody on my back, but I do like the definitive answer in the match. Like either you escaped in time or you got, you know, ridden out. So the absolutely like you have a you get to define a winner, that's great. I'd much rather have that than a close decision and it kind of goes the other way. What about you? I mean, honestly, there's all the different rules. When I look at the rule sets, I just try to think of what rule set I could beat that individual in. And yeah. I sort of gear myself towards that. That's really the strategy there. I think there's some guys that like uh, that stall a lot that you would love to have EBI overtime with at the end. You know, they're stalling until they have to give us a good position. But then there's some guys that are so good in those positions. I'm like, oh, maybe we just do a regular match. You know, what are the rules in the streets? <clears throat> the streets, no time limit. Yeah, that's one of it. There's also like 
concrete and cars concrete, and stuff. Biting. Biting, yeah. Poking. Yeah, so you don't like that rule set? Are there some people you would prefer in the street as a rule set? Me? Probably not. <laughs> uh, I don't know, though. EBI. I mean, it's tricky, you know. It depends on the opponent, which rule set I'd want to do. Uh, what about you, Nick? What do you think about the rule set of EBI? Yeah, so I think EBI is, is very good from a spectator point of view. You know, people find it uh, very entertaining to watch, um, you know, because people want to see submissions. And you're putting people, yeah. you're putting the athletes in a, in a position where, you know, you have like the highest percentage submission in the sport. So obviously you're going to get a lot of submissions. Um, my issue with it is it is a rule set that allows somebody that's overall worse at jujitsu to win a match. You know, a guy can go out there and just stall and just get completely dominated for the entirety of regulation. And then he gets to start on the guy's back. So that's, that's one, my, uh, my one issue with it. But also, I mean, it's interesting to see like the best people in the world have to be put in a really bad position and to see how good their escapes are, for example. Yeah. I it's think, interesting. Yeah. But, but it doesn't feel like a realistic. It's it's a fun thing to watch, but it doesn't feel like the real fight. Yeah. It feels weird. I'll claim it. If I start an overtime on someone and finish them, I'll claim it. But if they submit me an overtime, I'm like, oh, so You're going to deny it. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's good. <laughs> <laughs> the issue is people are like stalling to just win the overtime. Yeah. So where you got this guy, this, his whole training camp is just not get subbed and, and win the overtime. It's a bit boring. By the way, I have a, a rose behind you. Somebody gave me a Valentine's flower. So if you if you missed the one from Gordon, I got one for you. Well, I'd appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to feel loved. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> so what did you learn from that match? Like your takeaways, technically speaking. Like what, uh, what, what do you need to work on? Well, I learned that uh, I am pretty good. <laughs> yeah pretty good uh i got a you know a few i know exactly what my weakness is you know it's the the leg lock department and i'm doing i'm doing a lot um to to you know get better in that specific aspect attack I feel, and defense or? attack I, I would say yeah but attack defense reattacks um even if i wanted to offensively enter a leg you know i could use some work there as well um uh, but i feel like once i solidify like um my like if i come in, i'll become a black belt specifically in the leg lock department i feel like i'd be unstoppable if you nick Rod, definitively beat gordon ryan how would you do it buggy choke buggy choke buggy choke uh, um, for the listener <laughs> i don't even know how to describe buggy choke uh what's what's the definitive like conclusion on on, on that choke does it work it's a, a it's a choke that you do when you're in a uh, what's the opposite of a dominant? It's not submissive. In a non-dominant position of t bottom of side control. Yeah, just an embarrassing submission to get caught with, really. Yeah. But is, does it work? It works on certain people. <laughs> but... For the listener, he glanced over at Nicky. Okay. <laughs> it's embarrassing, but it's also what? It's a way to frustrate the, the opponent. For sure, yeah. It's a new part of the sport. I feel like the Rotolos brought it back into fashion. And even if you don't get it, because it's one of those moves that's so embarrassing... At the first sign of danger, the top guy abandons ship, and you can basically retain guard by attempting a very embarrassing submission. So the threat of embarrassment. Yeah, yeah. everybody. People pull out very quick to avoid suffering the consequences. I think some people underestimate how uh, good of a submission it is. I mean, like once you're locked in there, there's not too many defenses for a buggy choke. Are, are you? Is there an instructional on the way from you? On the 
J-Rod, actually, my little brother has one. Oh, yeah, for real? You actually legit have... Oh, wow. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. Well, check it out. So, I mean, there is... I mean, you're making a joke out of it, but it is a real, like... There's a system to it. I mean, yeah. I don't know if we call it a system. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good move. <laughs> uh, I mean, you take an opponent uh, that was just winning in a in a in a greatly dominant position, and then boom, in that same position, they're pretty much they're losing. You know, it's a uh, it's an interesting move. What's the name of the uh, What's the name of it? It's called the Buggypedia okay the the buggypedia i thought there'd be something like very craig jonesy about it okay awesome uh i know you don't want to sort of reveal the secrets of what you're working on but in general do you uh, what, like, uh, what does of, it take to beat gordon i guess is okay the question. so it would have to be some kind of a choke i think any joint lock or anything like that he's just gonna let it break and, and stay in the match so i, I don't even think he'd tap from like a uh a renegade choke i think i would have to put him to sleep so um putting him to sleep is how i would win so gordon is somebody who really hates losing yeah, like he won't even tap in the in the practice room. I remember like I had a toehold a couple times in practice room and he was just comfortable like working there. I'm like, I'm not really putting much on it. I think he just, you know, maybe it, because of situations like that in practice, he kind of didn't respect my toehold's ability in, in uh, competition. You've done that to me in the practice. I ha yeah, I have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I gave you a little, you know. Give me a little pup and then he let go. <laughs> and that was, just only, to... that was only 10% right there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't get into math. <laughs> okay. Um, is there some part of that you think is necessary to be a champion as to like this almost unwillingness in competition to tap? I think there's definitely something to be said for people that are just like, uh, you know, willing to go that extra mile or to take that damage to secure their, their victory. Um, is there part of you that like would hate to tap or hates to tap? Yeah, I mean, all, all of me hate, would hate that. <laughs> yeah, you, all, the whole part of me. Uh, isn't there a John Legend song like that? All, all of you and all uh, of me? Very romantic, yeah. Yeah, no, we're sticking on that theme. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, oh, one of the things uh, Gordon uh -oh. asked, I, I forget how he put it because I think there's a lot of words that would need to be censored involved, but he said, ask them... Um, how it feels to have a zero five record against me with four submissions combined? I mean, first of all, I wasn't sure he could count to five. Yeah, that's an impressive so that's thing. Impressive. Um, <laughs> oh, and five. I mean, I will say one thing: nobody beats me four times. <laughs> I love you so Lex, much. Lex, I Greg. did have a question. <laughs> I did have a question for you. <laughs> there was some controversy on your Twitter. <clears throat> yeah, about a list of books. Yeah. And I was wondering why Gordon's book wasn't featured amongst that literature. Well, it was only the first 30 books or like the first 20 books. And it would, of course, be in the... Something interesting about Gordon, he's the first author that's written more books than he's read. <laughs> Pretty good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you if you face him and beat him, what, like what, what's your take on what it takes to be Gordon? I mean, you guys kind of joke and you go pretty pretty hard recently uh, on each other. But as a fan of jiu-jitsu, I'm all in on this rivalry. It's just fun to watch. I mean, first of all, I don't think I go really hard with him. I think Gordon is he's pretty sensitive. You know what I mean? He's looking for a large insult in a small insult. And for me, like Australians, we just attack each other mm -hmm. all day, every day. And for me, like if I see someone that takes himself very seriously, that's like blood in the water. That's funny to me. To me, if I can just gently provoke and get a strong reaction, 
That's hilarious. Like Aussies, we will just attack each other. And the first person that gets upset, he kind of loses the exchange. So I think that is very, very entertaining. Like if you were to beat Gordon, would the mental game off the map be part of it? I think it would be a fact of a sure, but I mean, I'm never going to come out too crazy direct with him. You know, like I don't, I, I find that like if you get too upset on the line and you're going crazy, I find that I'd be embarrassed to do that myself. Obviously, each, everyone's different. Everyone has a different style, you know, but like, yeah, I think mental, the mental aspect would play a big factor. I mean, mainly because if I were to beat him, mm-hmm. I would send him a message every day until I died. Yeah. Just to gently remind him. But I got the last one. The last one is all that matters. We're not giving sco- yeah, We're not giving score yet. So like once once you beat him, you you're going to run for the rest of your life. I mean run but look back. Yeah. You know? Look yeah, back with messages. <laughs> A side step. Ride ride your horse to, into the sunset. Okay. Uh <laughs> Oh, by the way, you've talked very lightly. You've talked shit very lightly against Alexander Volkanovsky's opponent. Very lightly. Have you received death threats or how's, how are you still alive? Like Gordon, mm-hmm. I would say people from Dagestan of take a joke very well. You know Do what I mean? Really? Do they really? No. <laughs> oh, like Gordon. Oh, like, sorry. I'm slow. Now, <laughs> I went aggressive mode in my head. Now, honestly, I'm listening to you. Islam was pretty cool. I wanted to stir it up a bit, you know, because like I felt like that was a massive fight and it probably should have had more attention than it was receiving. So I wanted to just gently stir it up a bit. I feel like Sambo guys are in the same vein as catch wrestlers, very sensitive. You know, like obviously there's only three people in the world that do catch wrestling, Sambo, maybe 10 to 15. So I figured we could really provoke them with that sort of jujitsu Sambo stuff. Islam took the jokes very well. The Russian fans, not so much, are very serious. There's not many smiles in Russia, you know? Um, they didn't take it as well. I'm trying to suppress the anger. The rage is building up inside <laughs> me slowly. Um, so you guys mentioned steroids. I like that you bring that up after we talk about Russia, for the record. <laughs> Smooth. Smooth segue there. I do not condone the statements um, said by the Aussie, I, but I, I would love to travel with you to Russia. That would be a good time. Yeah, You might get killed with me now. No, I would be the like the first to to, to turn to backstab you. <laughs> You're like I got in there, I got in. <laughs> All right. Um, are most of the top grapplers on steroids? I mean, it's hard to say. You know, some people look like shit and they're on steroids. Some people look excellent and they're not on steroids. It's so so hard to tell. But that seems to be the the general consensus that a lot of people are on steroids. I'm always a little bit I don't know, so I'll be honest, I've never I've never seen anyone take steroids. I've never taken steroids. I don't even know if that's the right term to use or like TRT any of that. So I'm very careful like to not let my naivete like um lead me to take conclusions but i do feel a little bit weird about the witch hunt nature of it that some people a little bit too eagerly claim that others are on steroids just because they're successful um but at the same time it does seem that a lot of athletes will do whatever it takes to be successful yeah i mean if a sport doesn't test you got to assume most people are going to do it and especially now as more money comes into the sport you got to assume more people are going to do it, you know? I generally, like, do AGCC and, like, does jiu-jitsu test? It's actually encouraged. 
What's encouraged? No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you get a pamphlet. Okay. They don't test. There's no test. They test procedure. to make sure we're on steroids because obviously it's a big show for the UFC fight pass in the future. <laughs> you don't want anyone coming in out of shape. Very nice. Do you think using steroids in that kind of context in sports is wrong? Like stepping stepping away if it's not illegal. I mean, do you from think my ethically speaking? I like to assume everyone's on steroids, and I have to feel bad about using steroids myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you use them? You use all of the steroids. I'm over thirty. It's TRT. You know, that's yeah. the medical definition. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the medical. De- okay. <laughs> uh, I'd like to meet your doctor. Therapeutic use, you know. Therapeutic, right? Um, like, how do you just feel about it? I mean, it is cheating for sure. Whether they test for it or not, I think it is cheating. Obviously, some people are going to say, oh, fuck, everyone's on it. Uh, I should be able to get away with it. It makes it even playing field. You know, but it kind of becomes Russian roulette because it's like if one guy's taking a small amount and the other guy is taking a huge amount, he's going to reap huge rewards in the short term, probably be dead pretty early, but die a champion, mind you. You know what I mean? So it's like, I don't know where the line is. Yeah, Yeah, what do you think about that? Do you think... uh, (laughs) Do you think it's worthy to take health risks? I think if you're just for the glory. I think if you're 40, about to die, looking at a cabinet of gold medals for wrestling other men, it's probably not going to hit the same way on your deathbed. You know? What? Sorry. In which direction? Like, uh, is that a good thing or not? No, probably, you're probably going to feel like, oh fuck, I probably wasted a bit of health on that. You know? You think so? Isn't that isn't that like the glory of it? Like you said, other men. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in, like in my so- opinion, I'll, I'll maybe wrestle a woman as well. But. <laughs> What'd you do with, with Gabby on Valentine's Day? What did you take her? Did uh, you guys- we filmed some new stuff for OnlyFans. For OnlyFans. We never stopped working. <laughs> never so the love affair is also a work affair. Okay. I don't know. I, I, I There's something to that. I mean, like, like a Olympic gold medalist accomplishing like the heights, like, sacrificing everything. Just everything. The first 20, 30 years of your life for this silly little piece of metal. I don't I think there's something beautiful to that. That's like inspires a, a lot, a lot of people. And that's like the height of the human condition in a way. Like what accomplish- if you survive? I'm just saying if you're in your deathbed early in life, well, we all die. All men die, Jones. <laughs> but not all men truly live. How many years part. how <laughs> many years sure. are you willing to shave off for a gold medal? That's a good question. How many? How many are you willing to shave off for a gold medal? Well, you're for a silver medal. For a silver, I mean, for a silver medal, I'd shave a few off. I think two silvers makes a gold. (laughs) (laughs) It's worth five years? Five to ten, maybe, yeah. Shave off the bad years, enhance the good ones, you know? Well, I mean, you've sacrificed. You guys sacrificed a lot, a lot of your life. You continue to sacrifice. Oh, you don't don't see it as sacrifice. It's fun. I think training's fun, being adamant about it, consistent. Gives you, I mean, we. I think we have a great routine, great ritual. Definitely enjoy the process. All right. Well, do you guys know um, this is bro science, or or I'm talking bro scientists? But do you know how long steroids stay in your system? Forever. <clears throat> Forever. Oh, because it's like, <laughs> hey, once you do it, <laughs> you own it. Yeah. <laughs> Just the knowledge. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's different for each steroid, right? I think some of them last longer than others. Depends if it's a urine. You would think I would do a little research before this asking these <laughs> questions. Why do you think most athletes and coaches don't talk about steroids? Like, why is it such a like a secret? Why is it so embarrassing? I think they probably talk about it like amongst the team and whatnot. Again, I mean, it's only it's, it's going to be more shady if it's like a 
your your sport is tested or not. We're kind of in the wild west in the in the grappling world, you know. Yeah, but why, why don't grapplers talk about it? Because it seems cheating. I mean, it's it's kind of insinuated as a, a bit of cheating, even if it's not like uh, if it's not tested. I mean, still, you're you're taking a person that could you know maybe has good jujitsu, good mechanics. You putting them on the leg, and they're subbing you with a heel hook versus breaking your leg with a heel hook. You know, something as subtle as that can make you know big differences. All right, this is going to make me sound dumb, but is it possible that steroids are not a huge help in in grappling? I think if you're bad at jujitsu and you do steroids, you're going to continue to be bad at jujitsu. But if you're great at gear, I'm sorry, if you're great at, at <laughs> grappling, <laughs> if you're great at grappling and then you also do gear, it's going to enhance what you're already, you know, good at and make you much better. But like how much is the enhancement, I guess is the question. How much is, is muscle valued? Right. Like if That's you're, the question. If you're doing gear and you're not changing weight that much, like maybe it, it helps you a little bit, but if you know, you're, you're gaining 50, 60 pounds of pure muscle and it's like, that's a huge enhancement. That's another human. Does, does, does muscle, a small human, yeah. Uh, does does muscle matter in jiu-jitsu? I guess, I guess is the question. Uh, is that, it possible that it gets in the way? I'd say muscle matters, but technique matters more. I also think that it, it'll help you develop technique as well. Because obviously, you know, testosterone helps with recovery rate. So if you're on gear, you're able to train a lot more. Now, with that being said, if you're not able to learn, obviously it's not going to help in that aspect. But if you're somebody that knows how to learn and get good at jujitsu, and then you add gear on top of that, you're able to do significantly more sessions throughout the week. Okay. And by the way, gear is steroids? Steroids, yeah. Okay. I also think that you don't have to be as consistent uh in like your sleep and your food and stuff if you're if you're on gear you have a little bit of leeway um but i mean being consistent in, in your diet and, and your sleep definitely would, would would help you know the process since you use most steroids, most steroids yeah, yeah. of any athlete i've ever met do you think steroids <laughs> help, help jiu-jitsu oh, man. i think obviously it helps recovery and your ability to train well but i think some I've seen some guys go on steroids and then suddenly they feel like the incredible Hulk. And now in the training room, they start to rely more on strength yeah. than the techniques they had. And it actually, in some respect, hinders them and makes them gas more in competition because then they're using more of the muscle they never used to have. So you've implied that you're a natural athlete. Mm -hmm. You said that. You said that skeptically. <laughs> Why are you skeptical? Like? Is, is, this, is this something you do for for social media to talk shit to Gordon to well, imply I, that he's not a natural athlete? Well, I only uh, pretty much recently on social media I had this rebuttal, you know, saying that you know Gordon's on gear, and I only said that because after after our match in in the our most recent match, you know, the EBI rules match, he accused me of greasing which is like lubing up so i'm slippery during our match so and you, and you did not i did not i was checked multiple times before and after uh, our grappling event and uh, he still you know went out and accused me of this so i was like all right as opposed to telling a lie i'll just tell the truth about you know your, your steroid use which it shouldn't be that big a, of a deal in retrospect because he kind of admitted it and whatnot you know previously um so it's uh yeah, I just kind of felt like I had to rebuttal and I, I didn't do it immediately because I was like, all right, I'll, I know I have this podcast planned, so I'll wait to do it on you know my friend uh, <laughs> Mark Bell's podcast, <laughs> you know, be a little more, more, get a little bit more exposure on it. Sure. And uh, yeah, I knew he was going to bite the bait, but I didn't think it was going to, you know, bite the bait that hard. I, I know he's uh, a little stressed out about, about the comment, but you know. And that was the origin of you guys going back and forth on. Uh, well, it wasn't so much back and forth. It was just. 
I went fourth, and then he kept going back, back, back. Like I, I remember one of one of my guys DM me, and they were like, "Gordon's made like sixty eight Instagram stories, and sixty seven of them were all about you." I was like, "All right, well, I'm in his head for sure." Got us a few followers. We appreciate. We that. did. Sure, they, yeah. We did get followers. He even shouted out our our B team wipeout program. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> okay uh speaking of which uh what's the b team how's it run and why is it called the b team well i mean craig it was craig, the a team taken I, I would have been <laughs> for me b's for best okay best all right what does b stand for for you what does b. it represent what is the ideal like the you know uh miyamoto musashi philosophical foundation of b team aim low and achieve huh. <laughs> if the bar is set low, you can't help but win. Okay. That's Nikki's philosophy with women as well. <laughs> set the bar incredibly low, overachieve. So what 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 is the B team? How do you guys run it? Like what uh yeah, I mean, can you just talk about the school, how you found it? What 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 is it uh what's it like? I mean, pretty much just a regular uh jujitsu gym. We started a, as sort of a pros only purple bone above um team. And we have me, Nikki Rod, Nikki Ryan, Ethan, Damian um, as coaches. Am I missing someone? Oh, JB. Your memory JB. is with your old age. Impeccable memory, yeah. And we got JB coming on to teach wipeouts. But just your stock standard uh, jiu-jitsu team, we focus on uh, more, we lean heavily towards the professional athlete side of things. We have a lot of uh, high-level guys in there. Yeah. Class structure, regular instruction, positional sparring, open rounds. But we sort of took a a heavy slant on marketing side of things. We really try to blow up the YouTube channel. Um, obviously we sell a lot of clothing, merchandise and stuff. So yeah, we just sort of took a modern approach to a standard jujitsu gym. Cause I mean, jujitsu gyms are full of some of the most boring human beings on earth. So we try to highlight- Strong words, Craig Jones. Strong words. <laughs> <laughs> highlight the other side of things, you know, keep it pretty lighthearted. That it can be fun. Yeah, that jujitsu can be fun. I guess that it can be cool too. You know, it's not just full of, steroided up autistic people you know question from reddit quote need to hear some of the stories about drop-ins that led to the making of the gem of a video the do's and don'ts of training a b-team any any, any fun stories any ones that stand out do you guys remember any police involved ever we had a guy come and we had to kick him out he was stalking two of the members uh yeah well i mean that's just crazy people you know like i portray a pretty insane image online and i guess i am that a lot of the time but at training try to keep it while training around training i'm insulting everyone but while training i try to keep it pretty serious but obviously the image i portray lures in some of the the crazier members i mean like the thing is about the the gym you guys run is is really professional it's like friendly it's like the light-hearted joking is there obviously the, the you know like shit talk and all that kind of stuff but like it's it's a pretty safe environment yeah, but, but the public persona might attract some some maniacs. Yeah. I won't say which places I've trained it, but it's obviously some places you walk into the room and it's very, very serious. Yeah, there's no smiles around. Obviously, it's probably average training room in Russia, but no smiles. Very <laughs> serious environment. You know what I mean? And yeah. uh, I definitely don't like that. I don't want to show up to training and be walking on eggshells, not know what the coach's moods like that day. I want to go and have a good time, keep it lighthearted. What was in the video? What What are the do's and don'ts? Because like the address is public. Like anyone can show up. Anyone can show up. Yeah. What were the do's and don'ts? Does anyone I, challenge you like to a fight? Not yet. Not mm -hmm. yet. I mean, probably from other gyms in town, they probably, that's probably 
coming down the line. But um, do's and don'ts. I'm, I'm all in on that. I'm, 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 I would be excited as a fan to just watch. The love of the drama. Not the drama. No, no, no. Well, a little drama, a little drop of poison is good. Um, but ultimately, it's the, the best grapplers in the world kind of um, going at it. Yeah, yeah it's fun. Because maybe I'm wrong, but I think there is a, an underlying deep camaraderie at the end of the day when you're like at the top of the world. Yeah. And you're like in the same town. What could possibly go wrong? It's like a shitty Western, but like an epic Western with like Clint Eastwood, like the good, the bad, and the ugly. Of course I love it. <laughs> I'm I'm here just eating popcorn like that. <laughs> staring the pot. I'm not staring the pot. I'm not staring the pot. <laughs> These questions the are pot. from Reddit. Not from me. <laughs> that, that one for sure. Yeah, I mean, what could possibly go wrong if you're the world's best grappler hates you and you're gently provoking him behind the scenes every day? Well, I mean. For sure. In Texas. And uh, you've stolen his brother, held him for ransom. Kidnapped. It's, it is like a story of a shitty Western, I think. You now allow white belts to train with you. What's it like to open it up to a bigger audience? Uh, we haven't opened it up yet, but it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I, I feel like your higher belts, they really understand what the training room is. You know what I mean? White belts early, they're trying to find their place in the gym, could be kind of awkward and stuff in that environment. So I think obviously those white belts coming in will change the dynamic, but the white belts will have a separate white belt classes obviously for them because given it's such a high level gym it'd be tough for a beginner to be able to enter the uh, more advanced classes well obviously we're teaching more advanced techniques so yeah we've separated a white belt program i believe 6 p.m Monday yeah. to friday yeah maybe we'll have a saturday one as well but it'll be interesting to see how it goes we're trying to do things different you know like we're trying to do your traditional jiu-jitsu gyms obviously you're not going to teach beginners wrestling at all we're trying to split it at least 33 percent Top game, bottom game, and wrestling. So at least create more well-rounded athletes from day one. Whereas I feel like most traditional jiu-jitsu gyms might have nogi once a week. They don't touch wrestling. Very IBJJF heavy techniques. But again, the sport's changing for sure. Just to take that on, how does a beginner get good at jiu-jitsu? Like, given that you're starting this white belt, what's your philosophy on that? Obviously, buy all of my instructionals yeah. at full price, <laughs> yeah, not during a price. sale. Okay, That would go a long way. For those of you who are Russians, I'll give you. I'll, I'll send you instructions or all the forms of you know, how to how to steal it. Yeah, discount I'll share, code. I, I bought them all, so I'll just send it to you for we free. We do. I mean, we do have the Makachev fifty discount code. You know, yeah, offering discounts to help him out for the rematch. I got the nice Makachev <laughs> <laughs> discount. Uh, well, I got a hundred percent discount for you if you need it. But that said, your instructional are both hilarious and brilliant, and it's one of the most respected instructionals. Oh, thank you. Out there with incredibly great names. Yeah, it probably loses me sales, honestly, due to removing the seriousness of the oh, topics they think it's gonna kind of suck, it's gonna be some funny um, gimmicky thing. Or, yeah. I mean, mo some people don't even know if it's a real product. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. a big hurdle I have to overcome is they see it and they're like, is that a real thing? That's a problem. But how does the white belt get good? I think they just, I mean, just have to show up, just have to put in the effort, uh, try to focus on using techniques in training rather than just fighting to the death, you know? Although that is entertaining for us to watch, two white belts fight to the death. Yeah, but what are the techniques you should focus on? Like, what's the process? What does it mean to show up? Like, how much drilling, all that kind of stuff. Like, what if, what, if you were to optimize the first six months of a, of a beginner, there's a lot of people who would listen to this and haven't tried, they've been curious. I have a lot of friends who haven't, who are like jujitsu curious. They're constantly looking for an excuse to start. I think it's just gotta be as simple as possible. 
You know, like we shouldn't be teaching more advanced movements. I mean, obviously in the grand scheme of things, there's highly advanced techniques and then there's slightly advanced. And I think trying to teach those guys real specific positions, even like real specific types of guard is just beyond them. Mm -hmm. I think the best way to learn is through problem solving. And I think if you show the technique before they've discovered that problem, the learning is sort of held back. So I like the idea of using kids style games to show them a problem and then use the techniques to fix the problems they've just discovered. I think that's the best way to learn. Can you give an example of a problem to show them before you give them the techniques? Like, what are we talking about? All right, so say you wanted to teach uh, posture in wrestling. You could create a game where one guy, the game might be get to a leg or get to two legs, control the leg, like super simple. But the rules, the constraint would be one guy is forced to keep an upright posture and one guy is forced, well not forced, but he's allowed to keep a bent at the hips, lower posture. And obviously within the, that constraint, the guy with the better posture is going to have more success. He's gonna have a better posture to secure a leg or secure both legs. And therefore you've demonstrated the flaws of bad posture without having to explain it to them before they really tested that out. Okay, and then the result of that, you would realize that the, the bent over posture is better. Yeah, you have that aha moment rather than just being having it spoken to you. Uh, you wrote, Craig, uh, I'm a big fan of constraint-based learning, I guess which is what you're talking about. I love presenting beginners with a problem before the solution, like here, attempt to hold side control with no, with no cues on how, then I see how the guy got out and address issue by issue, cross face and hip control and so on. Okay. So what are some other examples, like side control? Yeah, that, that would be an excellent one, side control. Like teacher, like obviously we say, oh, you secure a crossface so they can't turn into you. Much easier to have them try to hold someone down without explaining what a crossface is and then use that technique to address the problem they've just encountered. So I think you could do that with a lot of areas of jiu-jitsu, like even more advanced, say 50-50, obviously a, a mirrored position where you both have access to each other's heels. Most people will stall out in that position and keep their feet crossed. I think a great constraint for both of them, you can't cross your feet. Now you have to learn how to uh, slip the heel hook when they expose it and how to safely re-attack of your own. So the constraint is you can't be too defensive in that position. And I think the, learn the rate of learning increases. Why do you think the rate of learning increases? Like, why do you think that works? Because you encounter more problems. Say in that situation, they're going to get your heel a lot more in whatever period of time you allocate the drill for than if the legs are crossed. I don't think the hard part's splitting the legs to get to the submission. I think the hard part's practicing control while they're trying to slip it at a later stage. And then obviously trying to slip your heel when you're in more danger also makes you more comfortable in that bad position if you're used to doing it with open legs. Yeah, I think that probably that style of teaching forces people to focus on because it's so easy to fall into focusing on like memorizing a particular details of a technique without thinking like, why the hell does this even work? And exactly, if, you, if yeah. you don't have that, you could get to focus on like, from like, as cliche as it sounds, from first principles, like why the hell, how the hell do I get out of this? Like, why does this even work? Why does wrestling work? Why do you have a bent over posture? You get to like start to ask those kinds of questions, which is kind of interesting because it's not obvious to me that bent over posture is, is the right posture for jujitsu, right? I'm confused actually about that. I don't know. About the correct posture? Yeah, for jujitsu. Like, what's the right answer? I think bent over posture is still good for jujitsu. Even with the judo and all that. Like, why are so many jujitsu people, like, at a high level, the posture is higher up? 
Well, I think the I think wrestling posture is it's a bit too low because it's not necessary, right? If wrestlers are like low enough to the ground where your hands could touch the mat, uh, but in jujitsu, you know, it's a it's kind of a mix between like wrestling and ju and like uh, judo or or Greco Roman wrestling. So, um, I think it's just a bit more more lax than it's it's bent over, but it's not upright and it's also not super low. You know, a bit more room for error too because obviously the a jiu-jitsu guy's shot isn't going to be as athletic or as quick as a wrestler, especially a wrestler with shoes. So it actually comes down to the fact that jiu-jitsu people just on average, even at the top level, are not good at shooting. I think so, yeah. I think obviously, I mean, all the wrestlers in American stuff, they're starting super early, super young. You know what I mean? They're, they've By the time they get to the same age we are really uh, in our sport and stuff, they've spent much longer doing the actual sport than the average jiu-jitsu guy. And then there's another level of wrestling, of course, with the with the Soviet bloc. That's just unachievable for your kind. Who knew <laughs> an Australian rugby? Yeah. A former rugby player. Rugby. Is that kind of like good. American football, but much less money? Is that what that is? Much less money, much tougher, I would say. But yeah. who knew that the cure to the Dagestani wrestling were the Aussies? Were the Aussies? Uh, okay, let's go there. <laughs> the, uh, your your friend, your training partner, Alexander Volkanovsky, you helped him prepare for the Islam Makachev versus Volkanovsky fight. Who do you think, first of all, won that fight? That's a tricky one. <laughs> How is that the tricky question? I will say when... Uh, when all I was the in, shit talk you've been doing, how is that the tricky question? <laughs> right. When I was in the corner going into the fifth, I personally believed live that uh, Volkanovsky probably needed a a finish to take the victory. But you have to think that way, right, in general? Or you like legitimately? It's a gray area because the judging, who knows? Plus, I was like, wait, we're in Australia. Where's this bias? You know, yeah. we've got some Australian judges here. Yeah. I was really hoping we get a bit of bias on that. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately not. Hopefully they lose their jobs. But again, yeah, it was, a, it was a close fight. I think sometimes you're blinded in the moment because, again, everyone counted Volkanovsky out. The crowd's behind him. So everything he does is going to get a huge cheer your bias towards the smaller guy, your bias towards the underdog. So you sort of, whatever the underdog does has a bigger impact in your mind. And sometimes that can bias as the fight goes along. But yeah, super, super close fight. I, got, I would really love them to have a rematch, uh, but obviously that's gonna hold up both divisions. So I don't know if they'll be able to do it. Do you think they'll do a rematch soon? I mean, that was an, that was an epic fight. I was listening to the fight companion during They it. all thought, uh, and so they biased strongly the the opinion. Round two was the the tricky one. Yeah, round two is the tricky one. Anyway, I'd love to see that like uh, run it back and do three. Actually, there's an epic fight. Uh, what was the brief conversation you had with Islam Makachev and his team? I didn't know how we'd take the joke because obviously Khabib tried to flying eagle kick Dylan Dennis in the face. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't sure how my humor would go. Yeah, but I mean Dylan must have said some worse things to me. I was just playing around. I mean, you can't really take anything I say serious, yeah. come across like an idiot. But so when he was coming up to me afterwards, I was like, oh, I don't know what he's going to say. And again, he, maybe he would have been more upset if he had lost, but he just received the judge's decision. Yeah. But he came up, I went to shake his hand, he gave me a big hug and then pretended to throw me. Mm -hmm. And then I thought the interaction was over and then he circled back. So that's why I was so awkward. I was like, oh, he's coming back. He wants to say, he wants, to, he wants something else. But he just said, why didn't you teach your boy how to escape the body triangle? Oh, Wow, interesting. What did you say to that? I said, well, I mean, obviously you've got to learn how to finish a rear naked choke. 
Is that what you said? No, I didn't say that. I was laughing. But then they ushered us out. They were like, get out of here before the Aussie crowd attacks here, you know? What do you think about the body triangle position that we're in? It seemed like for the first time, it's, it seems almost like Volk was yeah, like, did. dominant in that position, which is kind of weird. I mean, damage is meant to trump control. MMA judging. Damage is the number one oh, factor. Do, you, do you think the, the judges saw that? Who, what did they score that as? I think they all scored four towards Islam. Yeah, Three and Just five, uh, two of the judges scored towards Volks. One of the judges scored three for Islam. One of the, It was 49-46 uh, for one of them, and the other ones were 48-47. I think the, again, the confusing round was round two. I don't think anyone scored the body triangle round for Volks, which I wish they had. Uh, Volkanovski was and is still arguably pound for pound greatest fighter in the world. How long have you known him? I don't know the first time. I met him before he was in the UFC. When I used to live in Melbourne, he came down to train at Absolute. Yeah. And then we really connected on Ultimate Fighter. He, One of his guys he was going to bring to Ultimate Fighter, Brad Burdell, pulled out last second. So he called me when I was in Puerto Rico and he's like, do you want to coach on tough for five weeks? And like I said, Puerto Rico was apocalypse now. I was like, yeah, get me out of here. So I took, jumped on that opportunity and we were in Vegas five weeks together because he was meant to fight Ortega and then he got hit with COVID real bad. Uh, got stuck in, I think he was in hospital for maybe one to two weeks. And then before he flew back to Australia, they were like, all right, maybe we just do you guys as the ultimate fighter coaches. So I jumped on board with that and that's really when we've become close yeah obviously i was useful in the ortega fight help him get out of submissions he fought then korean zombie max holloway i basically just held the bucket at that point in the corner a couple striking uh fights and then again yeah we had to tackle the islam problem so i did spend five to six weeks down there preparing for that how did you uh tackle the islam problem how did I attack? Was you somebody who barely knows anything about wrestling having to <laughs> Obviously, help. it doesn't take much, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Especially Russian wrestling. <laughs> uh, did the beard help or like what? Like, what, uh, in all seriousness, what, what were some of the key ideas you, that you worked on with Volkanovsky to prepare for it? I had the help of Frank Hickman. Hickman was down there too, one of the Hickman brothers' uh, wrestling coach. So we were sort of like problem solving. And I mean, basically... We were confident in Volk's uh, fence wrestling, his cage work. He's super good on the cage, super like uh, under-respected in that position. And we knew that if you were able to take the scrambles to the cage, he would be effective against Islam. Because again, Islam is background in Sambo freestyle wrestling. But I mean, honestly, he's probably got the same experience on the cage as Volk's. Obviously, some of those uh, wrestling skills will translate very well to the cage, but the cage is still somewhat of a gray area, an equalizer. And Volk's, again, incredible ability to stand up, incredible defense on the cage, which you saw. We worked on strategies to get up and a ton of submission defense. Islam loves Kimuras, obviously rear naked from the back, arm bars, those are sort of, and arm triangles, dominant submissions. But again, the guys he submitted, not grapplers. Apart from Charles Oliveira, and again, Charles Oliveira was basically knocked out at that point. So it was still impressive. He submitted him. But again, I always told people this. They thought it was crazy. I was like, Charles Oliveira versus Islam in a grappling match. Oliveira is going to win that match. Which, like submission grappling. Submission grappling, yeah. So in a pure grappling skill set, I think Oliveira is a more dangerous grappler. So we didn't even come into it thinking Islam was this unstoppable boogeyman that people make him out to be. So we approached it from that, just focused on the techniques. 
ability to get back up, using turtle to get back up, using turtle to scoot to the cage to get back up and hand fighting from there, keeping it pretty safe. But what makes Volk so special, I think, is his gas tank. Gas tank and his willpower. He's just unbreakable. The Dagestani guys, Khabib, Islam, they are good at submissions, but they break guys mentally and they fatigue them and then they take the submission that's offered. Oliveira is a guy that can jump on submissions and have an incredible technical ability to finish those submissions, whether you're fresh or you're tired. And then you combine that with Volkanovski, who incredible willpower, never gets tired. You're never going to break him. And as you saw, he only attempted one submission the whole fight. Is that learned? Is that trained? Or are you just born with that that mental toughness? It's a good question. I mean, he's like an anomaly, like the entire fight camp, not nervous at all supremely confident the whole fight week completely confident he just has an attitude like oh everyone cast me out we'll see you know what i mean islam he's like let's see no doubt no doubt at all super relaxed up until about five minutes before and then he starts stamping himself up he's like you are not taking this belt from my family he gets into that sort of mindset he actually says that out loud you can't teach that survival he didn't even take a fight you know have you guys ever been like pushed to the limit like that or broken in a, in a grappling match? Uh, I'll do it in practice. Like, I'll push myself to, like, I don't know, I think I might pass out or die or something. Like, as, as far as, like, uh, how tired you get, you know, because, like, in a match... Um, you try not the, to ever get close to that in a match. Yeah, you try to... Because, you know, you, it's important to understand uh, where your exhausted, exhaustion point is. Um, but, yeah, if you have to push to that limit in a match, you probably do doing something wrong you know like if you like you see in matches where guys sprint the last like minute they try to win the match in the last minute and it's like you definitely had some mistakes leading up to that if you have to you know kind of go balls to the wall okay but has there been ever times in competition especially like early on because you're like you wrestled pretty hard and wrestling is pretty exhausting like not wrestling but you know wrestling style kind of thing going against the pe- best people in the world yeah i mean i definitely I, Again, I think I think in practice it's important to uh, do that hard work. That way, competition is 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 much easier. You know, I think if you if you redline in practice and you you really push to like death's door, uh, then once you're in competition and, and you're you're working with you know you're being fresh in, in a comp. I mean, it's it's much better. Have you ever been to that thing where Dan Gable talks about always wanting to be to a place where you can't get off the mat? Like you work so hard in the training room, you can't get off the mat. I think he says he's failed at that in his career. He was always able to at least crawl off the mat. Yeah, I definitely never like actually died on the mat, but I felt like I felt like I was gonna <laughs> die, you know? Sure, sure. Uh what about you? Do you quit all the time? I get a light cramp. I'm like, you know what? You got me, man. Let's do this again tomorrow. <laughs> Dude, if I'm asking Craig for a role, he's in the bathroom somewhere. <laughs> I do you do you see the value of pushing yourself like to that place where you're knocking on death's door. Yeah, but it, within safety, you know, because obviously the most uh, serious injuries occur when you're tired, overtraining yeah. and stuff like that. So I think like taking a page out of what those MMA fighters do, especially Volks with his training, like he's not necessarily pushing crazy in each round, but he's doing extra conditioning, assault bike stuff, crazy workouts outside. And uh, he does do some crazy training workouts, but all safe, very safe. Like when he's redlining like that in the training room, it's a very controlled, safe setting. I think to do that in jiu-jitsu against some of these lunatics out there that are trying to kill you, especially when you have a name, can be dangerous. So your approach to jiu-jitsu is don't warm up and don't try too hard. 
No surgery. For safety. No, for safety. Though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Longevity, you know. And talk shit to uh, about Russians. I got it. I got it. I hear you. Oh, you mentioned uh, cage work. What what what's interesting to you that you learned over all this time about cage work? What's like? What's interesting about the dynamics of that? Are you talking about both like the control in the dominant position, but also getting up from the bottom while yeah. you're against the cage? All of that. The added dimension of that cage, that wall being there changes a lot of stuff, right? So obviously, in some ways, it's a much lower impact wrestling style because you can't be sprawled on. You can yeah. shoot, the cage is going to block their feet, you're going to be able to chase down their hips. It's just a completely different fight. And again, because of Islam's judo skills, that upper body controls you see he's able to use against the cage, like the inside trips, uh, sort of the Uchimata style, Harai Goshi throws. So obviously those skills do translate, but... Yeah, I think the cage is a great equalizer for a lot of things like athleticism and stuff. It takes away a huge speed advantage uh, aspects of the fight. So he's really good at standing up. What is is there? I assume he learned all of that from you and your instructional just stand up. I mean, we were so confident. I was like, you know what? Work. Why don't we put this thing out a month before the fight? Yeah. Maybe the illegal download hasn't made its way to Russia yet. Yeah. But it was there for him. Can you can you explain to me what's in the instructional just stand up? Like what what are the, what are the ideas? What do you? I mean, the old school way to stand up. People talk about the technical get up. You know, the old Gracie put the hand. But I mean, that's that doesn't work. It hasn't worked for twenty years. You know, if you look at everyone that gets up in MMA, they're using turtle to get up. They're using wrestling to get up. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Which is uh, counter to what pure jujitsu says. They say don't expose the back. Don't ever expose your back. I think jujitsu is a terrible way to get back to the feet because if you were to retain guard and go half guard or close guard, super hard positions to get up. You're basically putting yourself in a leg tuck for wrestling. So I think you need to borrow from wrestling to learn how to get up in an MMA fight. So basically how to safely expose your own back while not allowing them to get hooks and use that to get back up, or at least not allow them to get two hooks. And that applies for MMA especially? For MMA especially, because obviously uh, striking is a factor but if they are striking, they don't have locked hands around your body, means you are able to move. You are able to make an attempt to get back up. They have to choose between control, submission, or strikes. Uh, post from Reddit, why does Craig Jones push so hard for a bottom is bad jujitsu? What is so bad about playing bottom guard, such as half guard or Delahio? <laughs> Those are the two options. No apparently. one likes a bottom. Why would I want to get up? It's the question for all of you. Is is the bottom a bad place to be? I mean, the bottom's bad if you don't want that guy on top of you. That's the way I look at it, you know? Okay, that's, that's, that sounds like something a cowboy would say, but I don't know if there's much meaning. <laughs> I, I think the point of jiu-jitsu is both are dangerous, being on bottom and on top. I think the longer the match is, probably favorites the top guy more, just because every movement the bottom guy makes is probably carrying your, your weight, carrying that gravity on top of you. So I think it's a bit more efficient. Uh, passing from the top as opposed to sweeping from bottom. Bottom's reactive. Top is active. The top player decides how to engage, how to approach the guard. They can use angles. They can use footwork. They can throw people, uh, throw the legs by. So it's an active position. Bottom's reactive. Reactive, you're going to get fatigued. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's very difficult to gas somebody out while playing guard, uh, but I think it's very easy to gas somebody out uh, when attempting to pass it. Well, you guys are talking about guessing people out, but is there more dangers from the bottom, like in terms of submissions and all that kind of stuff, or no? 
I'm back and forth because I'm a top I'm a top player, but I understand the value of being on bottom. Like when I do play guard bottom, I feel like the submission the submissions come much easier. Uh, and when I'm on top, uh, they come also pretty easy. But uh, maybe I just take a different route. <laughs> top, top two on, Cowboys talking about <laughs> just, <laughs> top on the straights, bottom in the shades. That's yeah, the <laughs> What was the hardest part of the training for the the training camp for Volkanovski? Like you're just experiencing world class MMA fighters training, and given yeah. your approach of uh, to jiu-jitsu of not trying too hard and no matter uh, what. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from my perspective, there's a lot of pressure for that. You know, like that's a that's that's a lot of pressure for me to go in and think that I could possibly figure out a way to help this guy address this guy that's basically never been beaten. I think he got knocked out once, but basically not really even been put in bad positions. You know what I mean? So that's a lot of pressure on me, especially because Volkanovski is such a great guy. Yeah. Jiu-Jitsu is different. You know, like you coach a guy, he loses, he has time to tap. But in MMA, you could get severely hurt. Yeah. There's a lot more weight in what you need to do as a coach. You have a greater sense of responsibility to their health and well-being. You know, like obviously I know Volk's kids, I know his wife, you know what I mean? They're putting faith in you to not just win the fight, but keep this man <laughs> safe, you know? So it, from my perspective, a hell of a lot more pressure uh, coaching him as an MMA fighter. So almost like the psychological aspect of like, um, of doing the best you can for him. Exactly, yep, yep. What was uh, what was hardest about the actual training? Was it the technical aspect of trying to figure out the puzzle of Islam or was it like being a good training partner in the, in the, in the like, in figuring out how the grappling would work, basically playing your best impression of Makachev. Were you trying to actually impersonate him? Like not not, not just uh, visually, but like in style. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely visually. You're not as good looking, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> A little taller, but uh, right. no. In terms of the training, yeah. I mean, Islam's known as an incredibly strong guy. So obviously I'm heavier than Islam. So theoretically, I should be able to replicate that strength difference. And then in terms of grappling, targeting those submissions that Islam does, like focusing on those in the training room, focusing on the way he holds half guard, and really in the grappling sense, trying to replicate him on the ground. And then, yeah, I wrestled with him on the wall a ton, trying to replicate, obviously, to the best of my ability, a lot of the stuff he does on the wall. Body lock heavy, inside trip, uchimatas, and just constantly uh, putting the work on Vox, you know what I mean? Like constantly chaining attacks against him really replicate as that. he's trying to get up and escape and all that kind of stuff so this submission like both judo and submissions just attacking attacking exactly and there's only so much you can do really because obviously he's been i think he's, he's been fighting a long time so it's like you're trying to polish what he already is good at you can't just completely create an entirely new game for him in the space of six weeks so you're trying to take what he's already effective at add to it and luckily a lot of the stuff he's already very good at was easy to add to for the for the fight. Question from Reddit. I'm very curious why other MMA fighters don't employ high profile grapplers from B team and New Wave to improve their grappling. That's from the subreddit. Uh, by now it's clear that they are levels above almost everyone in MMA simply because fighters there don't specialize in grappling. But it doesn't seem like fighters, even champions, get training partners from the most successful teams. Why is that the case? From your experience, why uh, doesn't Khabib call you? He might now. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> um. <laughs> um, put in a good word for me. 
Oh, what? oh, I will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He takes a joke pretty well. Yeah. Uh, um, no, no, you'll be walking with open arms. <laughs> I think your average jiu-jitsu coach, MMA fighters have bad experience with jiu-jitsu guys. Jiu-jitsu doesn't have a massive place in MMA. Obviously, rounds, stand-ups, it's hard hard to submit people. Your average Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt doesn't know anything about holding a guy down, doesn't know anything about how to stand up. Sure. So I think if you over, overly utilize that jiu-jitsu guy that hasn't had experience in more modern no-gi or training MMA fighters previously, it's going to be a complete waste of time to them. I think they're smart enough to realize that. Do you have, uh, and do you guys, do you have interest in MMA at all? Just not even like, well, certainly just competing yourself, but like just understanding the puzzle of MMA. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been a fan of mixed martial arts, you know, for a very long time you know, before I, I trained jits. Uh, personally, I, personally, I'd, I'd much rather coach than fight. But, I mean, I'd fight somebody for, you know, a good check and I get to pick the opponent, you know, mm -hmm. have a proper camp. Okay. <laughs> I could think of a good opponent, you know. Which, who's that? Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think is the greatest uh, MMA fighter of all time? Craig, we can start with you. Just as a fan of the sport, as somebody who's been deep in it. I mean, from my perspective, after that performance, I'm going to say Volkanovski because he was able to decisively outstrike Max Holloway, one of the greatest strikers in the sport, yeah. and he was able to hang with the wrestling of Islam Akachev. And in terms of Ortega, he was able to survive Ortega, who has some of the most dangerous submissions in jiu-jitsu. So I think, in my opinion, technically, he's the best. So even though... Even though he technically lost, he still he still has the crown. I, I believe so. Himself. Given the size difference, given he's moving up in weight, yeah. I think all those factors really. The underdog, everything, the pressure. Did uh, you think he would be able to hang in any of the wrestling exchanges with Islam? No, no, no. I was really surprised. That's why in my eyes, like, it's kind of funny, like winning at the end of the day, I feel like judges influence that. Although I did think Australian judges would, would like, rob the other way, but yeah. uh, <laughs> I was assuming they kind of, somebody paid somebody and not enough maybe. But uh, but in general, I just thought he won sort of in the eyes of what martial arts stands for, like sort of go into the fire and survive and, and thrive and finish the last round strong, which is kind of like spiritually is what a victory is. So I was, I wish we kept going. Like one more round. Yeah, exactly that kind of thing. Um, well, what about you? What do you think? Like, wh who are the fighters you admire? Or, like, who do you think is the greatest of all time? I think the fighter I paid most attention to was John Jones. Um, you know, he has a great ability just to mix the the high level striking, high level grappling. Um, although his, you know, jujitsu by itself isn't, you know probably isn't like you know super high level but his ability to mix everything together i would say he's he's the best and he's a fellow you know heavier guy heavyweight now so it's a, it's nice to see you know how those guys move at that weight and a fellow natural athlete <laughs> see what i did there all right, all right. uh what about what about you nikki uh, yeah if i had to pick uh, a goat i would probably have to say khabib uh, just because he was he was undefeated and uh, he had a very, you know, high finishing rate. You know, uh, very few of his fights actually went to a decision. Yeah. Um, so he just, overall, he dominated almost every single opponent he went against. The dominance. Um, uh, I mean, we, we've been joking about it, but uh, Craig, what do you think makes the Dagestani fighter so good? Like, from this small region of the world, so much dominance has come. I mean, obviously, the 
amount of freestyle wrestling champions from that region mm-hmm. probably puts their wrestling above and beyond the best um, in all of MMA. And obviously, a lot of even in the Olympics, a lot of champions out of there, right? So I think that skill set combines with them adding effective pin controls on the ground and jujitsu submissions. But I mean, again, I think it's that hard training. Those guys like Khabib would maintain that pressure throughout the entire fight and break guys down. Their ability to fatigue guys to a breaking point, I think, is something they do best. But I wonder what what that is. Was that technique? What is that? What is it about their upbringing? Because it's that just that part of the world. With the Satya brothers, with from the, on the freestyle wrestling side, to all, all the mixed martial arts people, like it must be part of the the culture. Also, they must be doing something. I don't think I've never I haven't seen a convincing explanation of why yet uh, of what's specific about their training, what's specific about their culture that creates that. Okay, what do you think about like the the flip side? What, what, do you admire somebody like uh, Conor McGregor who? It knows how to create a spectacle. You, Craig, who likes spectacles? Spectacles, yeah. I mean, I really admired early Conor McGregor because I found him absolutely hilarious. You know, like I I felt like that was peak banter. I feel like he just took the American world by storm. Aussies, British, Irish, Kiwis. I believe we have a way better level of banter and attacking each other. And it's almost too easy to pick on Americans that take themselves very seriously. I mean, arguably even other parts of the world too, the far east of Europe, you know? But that's the that's the tricky thing with, with Connor. I think he was, I feel like you could have gotten in the same kind of trouble because the Russians really took everything very seriously. They weren't joking around. Yeah, that's that's the problem. It's like, it's, it's, it's a bit of, I mean, some things he definitely takes too far, you know, but I felt like early on he had the right balance where he wouldn't really cross the line, but he would do he would do enough. He just took it to another level, obviously, later in his career. But I think early on, a bit of innocent it banter. Gets, it gets a lot of eyes on the sport, though. He's probably the, by far the most popular f- combat athlete of all time because of that. Yeah. I feel like you have to cross the line. I don't think enough people appreciate like the values he's brought by crossing the line. He's making a sacrifice crossing the line. That's going to affect him for the rest of his life, you know? I See, I don't think so. I think he can always walk back. Because I think, unlike man, people might disagree with this, I, well, yeah, I, I thought he always radiated a respect for the opponent, like, afterwards and underneath it. It felt like the same way you do. It When I hear you shit-talking, I don't see a person who really means it. I see a person who's having fun with it. I always saw Conor McGregor the same way. I don't know. and But people took it, like, extremely seriously. But I, th- I, I saw the respect, like, the common respect the martial artists have for each other that felt like it was always there. If you don't like that individual, you're going to perceive yeah, yeah. what they say more uh, negatively than if you obviously were. So, like, I feel like if you like someone, you're going to never think they really sure. crossed the line. That's true. So you're saying I like you. That's why I'm perceiving you. <laughs> you're bullshit in a yeah. positive light. Is there, are there people that hate you? Uh, I mean, some of the family members of this table. People that really get to know you all hate you. Uh, The fans love me. The friends hate me. (laughs) It's a good place to be. (laughs) Keep your enemies close. All right. Uh, What do you think is the most important muscle for jiu-jitsu? Is it biceps? Oh, uh, I think a strong, I think a strong back. I think back one, core second, and then biceps. Okay, biceps. Cool. Do you, do you legitimately think like weightlifting helps jiu-jitsu? 
it's kind of the discussion on the steroids is like the muscle mass and strength and power and explosiveness, all of that. I think sometimes when we're at that upper echelon of competition, there's there's only there's like little minute battles that you have to win. And if you're if you're relatively close in technique, then a lot of times a stronger opponent pulls it out. But it could be also just a limitation, right? You you hold position too long. Uh, what about for hobbyists? Do you recommend weightlifting? Like when you see people in the gym, I always recommend weightlifting. I I almost see muscle as the body's armor, right? The the more armor you have, the more damage you can kind of take, and you know maybe recovery is a little bit better. Um, and I've always seen weightlifting as a means to uh, stick to my routine. Like if I, there's no point in lifting if you're not eating right and you're not sleeping right. So if you kind of put it all together, then it's it, it's beneficial. What about you guys? Do you go? Do you go to the gym? I go to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you go like Believe the hotel gym to like use <laughs> an elliptical and that butt machine or? Um, uh, yeah, I focus on the glutes heavily. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, what about like, what about the injury prevention and so on? Um, how do you train to uh, minimize the risk of injury? You guys have all been pretty beat up. You've gotten a major injury with the ACL. Yeah. Uh, so how do you train to minimize injury? Probably not the right guy to ask, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, actually, can you talk through your injury? Like what happened? Yeah, so uh, about one week prior to uh, this last ADCC, I was uh, I was wrestling with um, this guy named Kenta who was also competing, and uh, I went to go lift him from like a rear body lock, and he hooked the outside of my leg, and we just felt something pop. You know, he felt a, a shift with his with his leg, and uh, when it first happened, it hurt for like the first thirty seconds. And then I honestly debated. I was like, maybe it was just, you know, some freak thing. I was like, I literally thought about continuing the session. Uh, then the next day I woke up and it was like super sore. I was, you know, limping around, couldn't couldn't do a full squat. Um, so it pretty much killed all of my training for the entire week leading up to the event. So I couldn't train or anything, uh, messed up the cut. Obviously, there's there's added nerves with that too, you know, when you're not in the gym every day leading up to the competition. Uh, I went out there. I wasn't really able to pull guard because I couldn't get, you know, full heel to butt connection, um, which is inevitable with playing guard. Uh, and I was very uh, hesitant to shoot as well. Um, so I came out with the idea of just trying to use hand fighting to to tire uh, my first opponent out and then mainly look to get to underhooks or, or overhooks and do mostly upper body wrestling. Uh, in the beginning of the match, I, you know, successfully got to an underhook. I got to a rear body lock. Um, he tried to roll, and I ended up in top position um, in side control. Uh, but it was during the no points period. And then as the match went on, uh, I gassed out, and uh, eventually he ended up uh, taking me down and then scoring with uh, with two hooks on the back. So what's the injury? Yeah, so I got an MRI actually after the event. I didn't <laughs> so know. You waited. Wait, wait. You waited uh, until after the event. Yeah, I waited until after. Because like the event. knowledge or, or ignorance is bliss. Is yeah, that? exactly. I was like, I honestly, I don't even want to know what's wrong. I was like, I just go out there compete. Um, you know, I knew it was like the the biggest event um, to date, and uh, I Did really you wanted to do it. Think about not doing it. Uh, it was definitely was a thought in my head, especially that that uh, the day after. You know, it's always the worst day whenever you have like a serious injury. Is the day after, uh, and I was like, man, I really can't do a full squat. I was like, I don't even know how I'm going to be able to do this. Uh, it, it got a bit better over as the uh, the week went on, um, but I was like, man, I I have to go out there and compete. I was like, I'm. It'll always be in the back of my mind. Like, what if if I ended up pulling out? What did you think about this whole? 
I thought he was just being a pussy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just slap him around. Just yell at him. Was I, the... I didn't think we pressured you. We just say you make your own decision, right? We just like. Well, yeah. Is that a yeah. tricky thing to do? Like with a heavily, like like a serious injury like this? We yeah, don't well, know. We didn't right? know. Yeah. That was the thing. We didn't know. Honestly, initially I thought it was, um, I tore my lateral meniscus. Um, but that ended up not being the case. It ended up being a full ACL tear. I was actually super surprised when I got the MRI results. Um, so yeah, we, we didn't know how bad it actually was. What do you think about that situation? I think, uh, Nikki's a tough kid. And, uh, I mean, when you're so close to that competition, you know, there's not many, you don't get many opportunities like that to compete in front of, you know, 15,000 people. It's like, uh, you know, props to you for pushing through it and, and getting it. And man, he had a close match with one of the best grapplers in his weight class. And it's like, you know, a few adjustments here and there, and especially, uh, you know, if he was able to train pre previously leading up to that match, I think that he pulls it out. So some of the things you mentioned is nerves. So there's extra nerves just because you're underprepared. Yeah, I mean, you know, feeling underprepared. You want to go into a competition with, you know, the confidence. I did everything that I could leading up to this event. I trained as much as I could. And then when an injury prevents that, you start to doubt yourself more. How do you guys think about injury? How do you train, you know, training with the best in the world, training to be the best in the world and avoiding injury? As you've gotten, you tore your bicep? I yeah, think, yeah, I tore bicep. Doing uh, curls or... <laughs> dude honestly i i was i was a body i was bodybuilding you know for like seven years and no lie i did i trained biceps like most days like almost that almost every day in those seven years pretty much i injured my i injured myself that's right? so jersey man that's anything great. else or just the biceps just i mean uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah i injured the bicep um pretty much i the day before a wrestling practice, I had like a, a killer arm day. And by arm day, I just mean training biceps, <laughs> very rigorously getting a sick pump. And uh, I go to wrestling practice the next day, you know, pretty late. I should have been there. I didn't get a proper warm up in. And the first thing I do is I shake hands and I go to shoot a single leg. And boom, I just blew my arm out the, the first movement I did. So just not being warmed up properly in addition to, you know, having a very vigorous arm day a few hours prior. <laughs> you, hear the, you hear that about warm up? So like, what, what are some lessons about avoiding injury? Uh, training at the I would moment. say number one is is warming up properly. Make sure making sure your your body is hot before you do hot stuff. <laughs> okay. Uh, and what does warm up look like for you? Is it jujitsu or non jujitsu stuff? Yeah, just for a warm up in general. <laughs> I'll do I'll do something like a uh, if I'm talking competition, something like a um, a jog walk back and forth a few times, then a sprint jog few times to get that heart rate you know up and down yeah and then uh i'll grab a partner i actually just filmed a dvd uh or instructional uh, specifically on the pre-match ritual um in addition to that i'll i'll you know grab a partner i'll drill some some movements uh typically i'll drill some bad things like i'll start from bottom bottom mount bottom side control work out from there and in pretty much like 20 minutes in i'm i'm hot and i'm ready to go for you know rounds well what about you Greg, so what? Uh, what's what's the way to avoid injury? What's the worst injury you've had? What's the worst injury? I don't even know. I'm pretty good, pretty healthy. Yeah. Whenever you whenever you quit in practice, I'm like, that's a mental. <laughs> uh, Have you, has your heart ever been broken? Uh, many <laughs> times, many times. But um, there's a thing I notice: people that spend the most time warming up, often the most injured. <laughs> it's a strong correlation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I can't. You can't argue with science. I remember what, you're right. Training with Oliver Taz. Oliver Taz would have a 60 minute warm up. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Always injured. Yeah. 
Yeah. Very common. Yeah. I find that very common in the training room. No, I think people, it's how they train. Like if you, like me, first sign of discomfort, backpedal, you know, <laughs> push through that stuff, <laughs> go too hard, go when you're too tired, you know what I mean? Get too emotional in the role. I feel like those are the times that I've been hurt where I just like, oh, I can't let this guy get me. When I have that attitude and try, I believe it's how you train and sort of, Obviously. So what does this come from? Like uh, positionally too, like because you're training against some killers. I mean, you tra you're training, you're training, you're training with him and going pro probably pretty hard. Once if Craig month. gets a little tired, he's like, "Yeah, I'm good for today." We go once a month with Nicky, right? That's it. <laughs> you know? And then you quit like 30 seconds in. Just say, okay. I mean, yeah, you know, you got to be safe. You know, <laughs> uh, I like it. What What about you? What have you learned from the ACL? Uh, Tara, <laughs> do rehab. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> rehab definitely would help. Uh, <laughs> Oh, so you haven't been like I didn't get religious. surgery. I didn't do essentially any <laughs> rehab. I just have no ACL in my left leg. So what's it like having no surgeon goes? You've got two options: surgery, rehab only. Nikki goes, I'll do nothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely should pick up on the rehab. <laughs> um, what's the, what's rehab for that look like? Like twice a day of doing some weird, <laughs> yeah. right. like bands or something. Good, he's learned from his, he's learned some valuable lessons from yeah. about taking care of his body. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's it like just training with no ACL? Uh, so at the beginning, it was definitely a little iffy. You know, I would have uh, an occasional buckle, like I'd just be wrestling with somebody and go to step back and it buckle backwards a bit. Um, but honestly, now, like I haven't had a single buckle instance in a while. Uh, it feels 100% normal when I train. Uh, it feels better than my other knee, to be honest. Like I had, <laughs> I had my meniscus taken out in my right leg, and that one gets sore more often than the the no ACL leg. Okay, all right. So putting that aside, is there <laughs> like, is there wisdom you've learned from that experience? Yeah, uh, definitely no. should be doing rehab <laughs> yeah. and and prehab. You know, I think that you know, especially if you're a hobbyist or or, or a professional uh, athlete, um, you should be lifting. Um, you know, whether you're rehabbing an injury or just for injury prevention. So I'm actually closer to uh, Craig because I I've trained m my whole life like pretty hard. Obviously, just a hobbyist, but like twice a day, did judo, wrestling, all that. Never broke anything. Never injured. Kind of like similar philosophy, except like last year, I guess a year and a half ago, I got a tiny like groin pull injury and it still hasn't healed. And I've been using your approach of not giving a shit. Yeah. And like, all right, surely this is gonna heal, it'll be fine, but it hasn't. But of course, if I was like an actual athlete, I would like probably still train through it and just fuck it, figure it out. But when you have other stuff going on, you just kind of wait it out. Yeah. But no, I think probably we have especially as you get older, you have to do that kind of stuff. I think it's important for people to, you know, determine whether they're, what they're going through is an injury or they're just hurt a little bit. Because injury, you know, for sure, take time, rehab it and get better. But a lot of people, like, they'll stub a toe or something, like, oh, you're out for a few weeks, you know, so. Well, that's that's the problem with the injury I have. It feels like a stubbed toe. Mm -hmm. So I was like, ah, I'll just wait a couple of days, it'll be fine. And then a couple of days later, it's not fine. And you wait, and then I never got an MRI, never got any of that. It's like, I'm sure I'll be, be fine. Yeah. So it's hard to know sometimes. Like, what? It's hard to know. I feel like a lot of people will just not check it out. I'll be fine. Well, Because there's a, several failure cases. There is a failure case of where everything is a stub toe. You're like, fuck it. Mm. <laughs> like, like, you're bleeding everywhere. Yeah, it's fine. Whatever. Uh, so you have to be careful. A lot, a lot of A lot of people can fall into that, too. I think I'm in that category. Go to the doctor. Why do you go to the doctor? Yeah.
Your best approach is typically wait until something else gets hurt so that you'll forget about the grain. That's yeah, exactly. That's what I was hoping. I was hoping to get hurt. <laughs> so, uh, waiting for the for the broken heart, maybe. <laughs> okay, so that that was very helpful. Oh, you mentioned you're doing a a, a, a whole thing on the pre match ritual. Can you kind of preview like what kind of what's involved in your pre match ritual? It's a pretty big in the wrestling culture and the fighting culture, like kind of what what to do before your competition. But uh, I think a few of our a few people are just kind of missing out exactly, you know, what to do. So I break it down for them. I, I break it down to people like uh, four weeks in advance. Um, how how you you should prep, you know, your training and your nutrition and your sleep for competition. Um, in addition to that, I break it down even like uh, to a smaller scale of like what how how early you should get to the event. Um, um, when you're when you should be visualizing you know your competition uh what to do like you know 30 minutes before 20 minutes 10 minutes five minutes mm -hmm. and the kind of mentality you should have throughout those uh those times before you actually step onto the mat when are you visualizing like how much are you visualizing the actual when you say competition you're talking about the the tournament or the actual people you might be competing against a little bit of both. I'll spend time uh, just visualizing the crowd. Like if if it's going to be you know an arena with fifteen thousand people, I'll spend time in practice and whatnot, like putting myself inside that arena and, and visualizing you know stepping on the mat and hearing the hearing the crowd scream and whatnot. That way, you know when competition time time comes, it's kind of the the same deal. I'm accustomed to it. In addition, when I get to the arena, I'll step on the mat. I'll, I'll kind of look at everything. I'll expose my senses to to what it's going to be, and then I'll kind of shut everything off. Like a lot, some people you know scroll through their phone and can treat treat it like normal have this normal conversations for me I, I like to limit my sensory input my sensory intake before i go out and compete i just feel like sometimes i feel like sometimes we only have so many decisions you can make in a day and i want all of my best decisions to be made when it matters when it counts uh what about you what's do you uh limit your sensory input on game day honestly no routine nothing eh I don't. Yeah, I don't do anything. I'm so just this like, guy's a double silver. <laughs> We're both. <double> silver. <laughs> you should get it. You should buy his instructional. Yeah. It might help you. I'll get another silver. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, nothing. Hey, I just try to relax. Treat it like it's before training. Have a tra Are it visualizations or no? No, no, visual no visualization. So the opposite of visualization. You just avoid it. Yeah. Avoid thinking about it. Yeah, I don't even think about it. I'm just like, yeah, we'll have a good time. You know, try to appreciate it that I can do it. By the way, when you visualize, are you visualizing tough positions or you visualize winning mostly? Uh, I definitely visualize winning. I visualize how I can get, to, how I'm going to get to my uh, most dominant positions because, you know, in comp, I want to do what I'm best at. And I'm also see, uh, I see my opponent in his best positions and how I'm going to escape those if necessary. But most of the time, I'm just visualizing exactly what I'm going to do in that match. And I go out there and do it. Okay, so <laughs> what when, when when your teammate Craig is you know another like world class athlete has a fundamentally different philosophy than you? Do you visualize being frustrated at him? Not no, him not frustrated, but I'll definitely come into practice with like solutions to to problems that Craig gives me. You yeah. know, like if Craig's, Craig's uh, you know catching me or something or giving me issues, like you know I'll go home, I'll I'll watch a, a match that he lost for motivation, <laughs> and I'll come back and I'll I'll put it on. <laughs> <laughs> Just DM him like a highlight reel of him losing. Yep. <laughs> uh, what about you? Like, does it does it affect you that you're a bit of an outlier? Usually, before I compete, right before I go out there, I go, "Why am I doing this? Yeah. Do I still need to do this?" Yeah. And I think, fuck, hopefully, it don't embarrass myself, affect my instructional sales. That's the last thought. But 
I don't even put too much thought into the whole competing thing. I'm just like, you know what? Train hard. Hopefully have a good time out there. What about the motivation aspect? Like that, that voice that says like, why am I doing this? That voice can break a lot of people. Like in the weight cut, it can break a lot of people. Like, why am I doing this stupid, silly sport? Like you said, a bunch of dudes just rolling around. Like, what's the point? I'll call someone with a nine to five job and I'll be like, yeah, that's why I'm doing this. Okay. You know? <laughs> Avoid that. <laughs> sure. Sell those DVDs, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't get too deep on competing. Yeah. We're so polar opposite. <laughs> it's like almost uncomfortable to be around you. Obviously, one of us is a clean athlete. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you should do a DVD on that. <laughs> uh, what, what, what about you in terms of uh, preparing for competition, Nikki? Um, the the day before, the day of, are there rituals that you follow? Uh, honestly, like the the few days leading up to it, uh, I, it's different for me every time. Um, like. Sometimes I'll warm up before the, I compete. Sometimes I won't. Sometimes I'll fast. Sometimes I'll eat. So it literally is just completely random. I don't follow any specific thing. Um, but in the training room leading up to the competition, I'll definitely, you know, like Nikki Rod, visualize that I'm walking out onto the competition mats. You know, I'll pick somebody that's, you know, a similar body type to the person that I'm competing against. And then, you know, we'll start out uh, with some distance between us. We'll come out, smack hands and, you know, act like everything's a real competition. I'll even sometimes have, you know, corners that will yell out times and things like that just to replicate it as much as possible. That's funny because I've talked to a lot of Olympic gold medalists. They used to do a podcast with like athletes and they all sound like Nikki Rod. <laughs> the two of you are outliers. I don't know. Sometimes I'll do this. Sometimes. So anyway, but that's also jujitsu culture. I think uh, maybe the chaos of not taking things too serious is actually really, really helpful. Sometimes the pressure of taking everything way too seriously can break you. I, I mean, it's just I think it's that biggest sport, really. You know, like, I think if I compete every day in practice, it just makes competition much easier. So yeah. I, I just put the pressure on there on the competition. Yeah, yeah. On, on the sorry, on the training, on yeah. the uh, competing in the training. I don't know. Olympic sports aren't that big either financially, and people take it extremely, extremely seriously. Like you don't really get get that much money from judo. I mean, I just don't take jujitsu that seriously because, like, I was just partying and having a good time until twenty one, and then I was like, "Oh fuck, do I get a job? Or do I pursue professional sports?" And I feel like if I can made a career in jujitsu with that with a decision at that point. And now you just stumbled your way somehow into like being at the top of the world. Yeah, that's what I feel like. I just walked into it. I feel like I couldn't just do that in wrestling. Boxing, I couldn't do that in other sports. What was the toughest match you've ever had that pushed you mentally, physically, technically? This doesn't have to be the best person you faced, but was there like a moment in your career that was like really uh, defining for you? I mean, I would say like the toughest mentally was just this this last ADCC. You know, I just had a, a big injury leading into it that kind of screwed the whole camp and, and weight cut and everything up. Uh, so I, yeah, I would say, I would say the last ADCC. Are you proud of your performance there? Like you stepped on the mat that you, uh, you pushed through all of it. Uh, like I said, I'm a very competitive person and I hate losing. Hate losing. So definitely not. Yeah. You had a collapsed lung. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can, can we actually, elaborate on oh, this? Or... <laughs> Dude, I, he was, he was so physically exhausted afterwards. Couldn't breathe. We had to get medical intervention. He thought he had a collapsed lung. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. So I, he, was, he goes, I was the most tired that I've ever been in my life in that match. I actually popped a blood vessel in my eye. I was trying so hard. He, wow. he comes out. He walks off the ADCC mat backstage. And I'm like, I'm kind of getting warmed up for my match. And Nikki Ryan comes 
he walks over huffing and puffing. And he, his, his mom's right next to me. He looks at her. He's like, I think I need help. I think I a lung collapse. <laughs> That's not true. Dude, no, not true. No. My mom's the one that called for medical okay, help. Okay. I was just laying on the warm-up mat fucking dying. <laughs> uh, well, we're happy you're fine. Too working long. Laid it all on the line. Uh, what about you, Craig? Defining or oh, toughest matches? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all pretty tough, you know? I don't know. I can't really pinpoint one. I mean, probably the most annoying one was obviously the one where I had Gordon Armbar. I was like, tap, bro. And he wouldn't tap. So I let him out. (laughs) (laughs) Mentally, I was like, I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Do you ever have a thing in your brain where it says, should I shit talk now or not? And you you say, no, I'm going to be respectful. I just can't be serious. Yeah, about some of these, you know. (laughs) I don't know. It's just silly. It's just all of it. The whole thing. Uh, What about you, Nicky? Um, dude, honestly, most of my toughest matches are are in the pri- the training room, right? Because I started with these guys. I started training under them, like you know, started training at DDS when I didn't have any knowledge, like of like I knew wrestling, I knew like a knee cut in jujitsu, but like I started training with them when I knew almost no jujitsu and then I had to like, you know, really work my way up. So definitely in the training room, like being like having one of these guys on my back or like there's a stretch of like a few weeks or months when COVID first hit and there was just like four of the best grapplers in the world. And we just did drilling and live rounds with these four guys. And it was just, it was, it was hard. It was very hard. You know, every, every round we're doing six rounds, seven days a week with the best grapplers in the world. And it's like, you get no break and you're forced to learn on the go. So I think in the, for me in the training room, that was definitely my my toughest matches. And that's where I built, you know, those mental calluses. Uh, <laughs> there was a period where I, I drew with Nicky Rod, probably what, nine months, 12 months. Yeah. And typically speaking, like I said, no warm-ups. The first round, we usually take it pretty easy. First round, you start in mount. The whole room, the rest of the training room, they take mount very lightly. Me and Nicky Rod would be fighting to the death every day. I felt like we did an extra round every day. Mm-hmm. It was very grueling. On the I'm body. very, I'm very mean when I'm in the midst of <laughs> drilling or or live or live. Like we would do, we would drill wrestling, you know, quite a bit, like stand up, and in the drilling, like I just wouldn't let Craig take me down. Like we're just, we're not going live. We're just drilling, but I just wouldn't let him put me on the floor. So yeah. things like that, you know. I <laughs> uh, know it escalate. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned Mount, like, uh, so you do positional training. So is that would that be the hardest versus like live training uh, open like starting from guard? I would say mount and turtle definitely definitely made me very tough because you spend all this effort getting off of bottom mount and then you got to get on top of a guy and the at the time I'm not that good at holding guys down so they escape quick and I'm like fuck I just tried to hold them down got to go back down same thing with a turtle it's like you you start bottom turtle you're trying to explode get out get away. And then, you know, you switch and this guy get up, gets up pretty quick and you're like, damn, I got to go right back down. So it was that constant <laughs> circle, man. It's it's very tough, but definitely, uh, you know, build some character on the mat. What do you think is the value of positional training in general in jiu-jitsu? Actually, this one, just interacting with you guys, it's not commonly done in just like regular jiu-jitsu gyms. What do you see? Because it, uh, probably it's not commonly done because it's so, f- most of the experience is just frustrating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you're evenly matched, you're basically frustrated the whole time. 
if you if you're doing it right. There's a psychological battle that happens in like the mountain turtle rounds. It's like you know because you maybe you get close to subbing a guy and or maybe you do sub him. Uh, you know when you start on turtle and you're on their back, you finish him and then you get this high point and then immediately you got to go back down to defensive posture. Yeah, and it's very like it's emotionally like up and down. It's it's hard to deal with. S super important if you're one of the better people in the gym because it just puts you in positions you don't find yourself in in regular training. So I think like a lot of, uh, if you're a big fish in a small pond and you don't do positional sparring, you're probably going to get exposed in competition. You might even look silly in those positions. So you really have to force yourself to do it, despite the fact that you're giving someone worse than you a position where they might catch you. So you have to sort of put the ego aside. Yeah, that's one, one of the things when I was training regularly, of course, training with you guys, it's like trivial, but uh, I didn't work on a, putting myself in bad positions when you get better. And you regret it because the, the the big negative thing it has consequence it has on competition is you don't take as many risks because you're kind of afraid for your back to get taken all that kind of stuff. That that was me before I went to DDS. I remember I showed up there in that old position. I was like, "Fuck this! <laughs> yeah. You better earn this position." You know? <laughs> yeah, so exactly. I didn't really have escapes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was a learning curve for me for sure. Uh, do you see the value in positional training? Or is it just the source of tremendous uh, frustration? Uh, yeah, I definitely uh, think it plays a big part in, you know, your confidence when you step out onto the the competition mats, you know, being confident that even if you get put in the worst possible situations, you know what to do and know how to work out of them. So I had a long argument with, uh, with Haja Gracie when he visited, and he thinks mount is the most dominant position, even Nogi uh, versus back. Would you, uh -huh. Is there a case to be made for that or no? Do you I think with? I think all of your opponent's utensils, their tools are in front of them. So like if you're on mount, they still have, you know, there's a few ways to get out of mount. I think yeah. if you're on somebody's back, I'd personally much rather be on somebody's back than flattened out. I'd rather have someone's back and then flattened out. Boots Literally. in, flattened out. Yeah, yeah. Boots in, flattened out. So not, not even body triangle, but just flattened. Just completely flat. Almost like the position in MMA where you see guys get finished because they can't get out. I think that position is probably the hardest position to escape. Can you see what Hodger's talking about with Mount, or is he just that good at Mount that like he says that? He might mean the gi, cross-collar, you know? I don't know. Or did he mean well, no He says controlling-wise, he, he just believes that you can complete, that there's, he actually thinks there's more ways to get out from the back than there is from the Mount. Prior to Getting the, up, including like physically. Prior to the kipping escape, I would probably agree with him. But that kipping escape is so difficult to manage. It's the funny looking escape where your uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. legs are wiggling. People have a lot of trouble. It's like super hard to learn how to do, but then once you learn how to do it, the effectiveness is just huge. Yeah, it's a weird one. When did that come to be a thing? Is that pretty recent? I, I mean, I saw DDS guys using it first, I think. Yeah. That. Who, who's the first guy to discover something like that? This seems like a ridiculous thing to discover. Yeah, like, what if I just wiggle? Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a joke at first. I was like, you guys really doing this? Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I remember somebody showing me like a te technique where uh, like if you just like walk your hand on a mat or something like that. Like an arm triangle or something? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Walk the arm, yeah. The arm high. And it's just like a funny discovery. Like as opposed to like trying to sh like shove it in, just like walk it. I like doing that to people, but with things that aren't true. You know what I mean? I'll just tell them this is a technique and watch them yeah. try to work out if I'm being serious or not. Yeah, that's what you do when you achieve guru status. They'll yeah. just listen to you like you're Steven Seagal. See what they'll believe. <laughs>
Speaking of which, how do you balance, you have to travel all across the world. How do you balance that with running a school with being a world-class jiu-jitsu athlete? Well, I, mean, the, I mean, the secrets of travel for me are two, two drugs, Xanax and Modafinil. <laughs> That's how we time adjust and we hit the ground running. But uh, What does Modafinil do? Xanax uh, puts I, you to sleep. Right? Yeah, no. I, I mean, I have narcolepsy. So it's an narcolepsy medication. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> how does that work with the steroids? How does it work? I mean, they work well together, you know? Yeah, nice. Focus and physical recovery. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of traveling and training and stuff, it, it is, I mean, we're lucky because we got so many high level guys. So like we can, we can travel and they're still, still in good hands. I mean, it would be a problem if me, Nikki Rod and Nikki Ryan left and the gym had Ethan, that would be a problem, yeah. <laughs> but we got to make sure it's not just him that, um, although everyone says they're happy when you're gone. So that's the moment I heard happy when I'm gone, but they do miss me Yeah, <laughs> for sure until I get back. <laughs> all right uh what about what about you just like balancing it do you try to stay completely focused on competing like for some of the big matches you have coming up or are you able to kind of diversify well i like to uh yeah diversify my training to where you know if i'm don't have a competition scheduled i'm more focused on skill development and you know getting better and broadening broadening my tool shed um but you know, if I'm like six weeks before comp, I really start uh, amping up the intensity that I bring into the mats against bringing some of that visual visualization towards practice, and uh, maybe I train less volume pre competition, but um, higher output per session. Yeah, what is uh, what, what's a perfect week of training look like? If like I'm not in, if I'm not in competition mode, I would say Monday, Wednesday, Friday twice, every other day just once. Uh, if I'm pre-comp, just Monday, Monday to Sunday, once a day. So that's on the mat. You're doing the full like positional training, live training, bicep curls. Bice oh yeah, I do a lot of bicep curls. Yeah, I lift a few times a week now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah cardio or no? Cardio is all mat stuff. Uh, cardio is all mat stuff. I do, I do do some CrossFit workouts. Like CrossFits, I'll do like some EMOMs or, or some AMRAPs or CrossFit, you know, terms. That's for Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, cr CrossFit is, uh, is a good way to, um, kind of like push that, that threshold sometimes on the mat. Cause I'm, I'm so good. I can't always get that, that like full red line. So I'll hop in a CrossFit gym and I'll do some workouts that, uh, you know, bring me closer to death. Uh, what, what about you, Craig? What, what is a perfect week in training look like? Like when I, you're back home training? I try to be at the gym twice a day every day when i'm back just because i travel a bit more than uh these guys so i try to be there eight and 12 every day hang out in between uh usually definitely usually train both of those sessions depending on how my body feels so doing positional doing everything like technique positional live i should probably do more positional but because i'm just trying to work on wrestling and stuff and especially leading up to the volkanovsky's last fire i was trying to wrestle more and focus on those areas even before i traveled over there just some experimentation with some stuff but yeah yeah, how do you how do you experiment with stuff? Like how do you so there's like regular positional stuff, but when you have ideas like what like where do you do it in during the training sessions or do it outside of that? You get you get together with somebody. Usually every session I show up with something I'm thinking of. Usually something from top, maybe something from bottom. But and then I just try to maybe pick the right people. Some people obviously I'm just fighting to the death with it's yeah. not a good time to experiment and then others obviously you can you can play around with ideas on okay uh what about you uh what's a perfect week look like uh maybe well you said you're 100 percent now yeah 
Um, so yeah, honestly, I have pretty much the same schedule as Nikki Rod. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I do twice a day, uh, every other day, once a day. And then, uh, normally, uh, noon practice is like our biggest class. That's where, you know, all the pros go in. So I tend to do more open rounds there. And then we have a 7 PM class as well, which is more hobbyist. Uh, and that's where I'll do my positional rounds and, you know, force myself to be put in, uh, bad positions. So you have, uh, what you do eight AM 12, like in terms of what B team has, 8 a.m., 12, and uh, 7, 7 p.m. And the hobbyists are more 7 p.m. Yes. Okay. Do you believe in overtraining? Do you think you can overtrain? I used to not believe in it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, then I got hurt. <laughs> I was like, all right. Oh, you attribute that to overtraining? The, I, th the I, th I think, uh, dude, I'm telling you, I trained, I lifted like a bodybuilder for like seven years. And l by lifting, I mean, I was lifting seven days a week. And I trained arms most days. Like almost almost every day, I would do like you know four or five sets and get a get a pretty good bicep pump. You know, in addition to my lift, I think I that had to contribute somewhat towards towards my. Uh, what about like, okay, yeah, fair enough. Well, what about on on the actual mat overtraining? Like spending too much time on the mat. Well, like psychological, I physical overtraining. I think you can definitely overtrain, but it's more of a uh, like as your body's healthy, you have to make sure your mind is sharp. Like sometimes, uh, maybe taking a, a a day away, or even even diverting your attention in, in a different aspect of training can help you be a little bit sharper overall. Sometimes it can be like uh, it can get a little like um, stagnant because you're doing the same stuff over and over. But I think if you just keep like you know overtraining, then your overall baseline just gets higher, and you that become you become you know accustomed to that. Uh, what about you? You don't seem like a guy that over. <laughs> I've heard of it. <laughs> Never been close to it. No, I think uh, controlling uh, how hard you train is definitely protects you from injury. You know what I mean? Like if you're redlining yourself and then you're fighting to the death in the gym, that's 100% when you're going to get injured, going to get sick. So I try to make sure I've, I've had enough sleep. I've had obviously enough food post-training and that sort of helps me to train a bit harder but <laughs> still try to avoid redlining myself too much. I think establish also like what days are going to be your peak days. Cause you're, yeah. you eat throughout the week. If you're training seven days a week, you're going to have ups and downs. Like for me personally, when they, when, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, usually my best days. And besides that, I also have other great days. All my days are great, <laughs> but Monday, Wednesday, Friday are also great. <laughs> you're like unable to admit that some days are rougher than others. Okay, I love it. <laughs> I'm always on, bro. Okay. Uh, what advice would you give to people who are not always on? Uh, hobbyists. How to get better. Like people that are already there. I don't know, purple bells, brown bells, black bells. They're just like doing like a couple times a week or something like that. Like how to get better. I think uh, being consistent, like find a schedule that you can consistently train. Maybe it's like, you know, three, four times a week or even a little bit less. Just be consistent over the over the years. I think too too often people are like, oh, I want to get really good really fast. And it's yeah. like definitely takes a long time to get to where you want to be. What about the what you're doing during like while well, being consistent, what kind of stuff you're working on? So honestly, I think one big thing uh, for me, which is something I actually started doing once, once B team was formed was uh, filming all of your rounds uh, and then watching it every day. Uh, Cause then you can see what specific problems you're having and then you can base your positional rounds around those problems. That's really interesting. It's kind of depressing though. Yeah. 
like sometimes I have to, you know, I, I edited this podcast for a long time. I still do in part, and I hate the sound of my voice and like what I look like. It's tough, but it does make you better. Yeah. And I also hate the sound of Craig's voice and what he looks like. So <laughs> editing this podcast will be especially difficult. This will be doubly difficult. Um, but I'm glad glad the rest of you are here. I don't know. That's that's a <laughs> do you what <laughs> do you watch competition footage of yourself or no? Um like to analyze, like oh, to yeah. see yeah. It's my confidence. <laughs> that's fucking good. <laughs> while, while you're doing curls. Yeah. I'm trying not to watch it to miss my confidence. Yeah. <laughs> Is there advice you Craig you would give? for hobbyists to get better? I mean, just uh, not every round has to be a fight to the death, you know? Sure. I feel like you're gonna get injured, burnt out that way, and you're not gonna learn as much. It's tough. I would say, just as a black belt who took just very seriously for a very long time, basically, when you become a hobbyist, your skill is basically slipping. Your age and your skill. And so, not taking stuff seriously is actually its own psychological skill of like, you that it's tough, it's tough. Like it, it's, it's tough in a way that uh, is different when you're like a blue belt or something that you're, if you work hard and you train correctly, you're gonna get much better. Here you're kinda- You're looking downhill. You're looking downhill <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I guess I'm gonna enjoy the art of it. Reframe yeah. the victory, you know? Like if it's a young <laughs> upcoming guy and he can't submit you, you're like, well, that's a, that's a moral victory, you know? Yeah, but then that ha that has to happen. You have to be able to not do that to avoid the injury sometimes. Like if you want, so yeah, it's a different, it's a different thing. Plus, plus with me, just because some people recognize me, they, coming. they, you have that probably, you guys definitely obviously have that. I've solved that problem. What, what's the, how did you solve that problem? Travel around, you do a seminar or anything like that? Yeah. It's believable that you could get submitted once. Yeah, but if they catch you, give them a few. Yeah, if people tell their friends they submitted me to seminar, yeah, one time, believable. Yeah, they got me four or five times. Four times yeah, you've robbed them of that. Okay, th that's pretty funny, but it's also they have this energy, like they think, you know, they're coming in hot, and I I, I usually like to uh, just basically get submitted quickly twice, and just it changes everything. It makes it more fun. I see, I've, I've noticed. Let it. them submit you twice. Yeah, just like very quickly. What you like? What are the options? Here? <laughs> we're not. They can last longer. <laughs> Hold off. <laughs> but then it's like it's very hard to like. Yeah, if you're a very serious competitor and so on, you take it seriously. Then yes, but like then people go. People what they try to do. This probably is what happens to you guys. They try to impress you by going super hard. I I have people every day come to my gym try to take me out. Yeah, gotta, gotta, you gotta, I just stay sharp. Come to practice. <laughs> let's get it on. Uh, do you do you feel that energy? I feel like I need to talk to Craig here for <laughs> <laughs> like, like at a seminar. Like somebody is coming in like really hard. Like a brown belt will come in like, and they really want to impress you with like their technical savvy. They're a big fan. They've been f wa watching your DVDs. Like, what do you do with a guy like? That? I make a complete joke out of the role. You know, give them the pass, yeah. mess with them, do stupid yeah, shit. You know, like rub them right. of the realness of it. Because it's stupid. I'm not going to roll hard with strangers. You know, I feel like you should roll with a circle of people you trust. Injuries happen rolling hard with strangers because that's the same way you get injured in competition because you don't have that uh, relationship with them. And I, I should also mention, that's probably not a good way to impress somebody's bug, just going ape shit, going 100%. 
Oh yeah, that's not not at all. I think the the beauty of jujitsu is like the camaraderie of it. Like as you get to know each other, it's like technical, like different ideas you have and all that. Yeah. Okay. Do you think uh, gi jujitsu is dying in popularity, Craig? Yeah, it's long dead. I I think it's just. I mean, it just shows. Like, uh, I mean. I have heard some numbers on the viewership for the Gi Worlds finals, and they don't even compare to the undercard of like who's number one events. So I think like when I was coming up and competing in the Gi all the time, you looked at those guys that won Black Belt World Championships and you were like in awe of them. It almost had that ADCC champion feel. But now that's not the case. You know, I just feel like that the younger generation aren't looking at who's winning Black Belt Gi Worlds. I personally don't think, and I don't think they're like, they want to be that guy. They want to be like a Rotolo. Gordon, you know, those are the people they want to emulate. You, so you think like the gi, like IBJJF gi tournaments will just keep declining in popularity? Oh, I think people will still do it. I mean, it's easier, I think, as you're over 30 because the gi is a bit of a slower thing and the master's participation is bigger in the gi because obviously your no gi is now heading in a wrestling direction. Wrestling and heel hooks, you're over 30, that's a terrifying prospect, you know? What's terrifying about the gi? less so i think in a participation rate the average jeff will still be good but i just don't think people are as interested as they used to be well why is wrestling and heel hooks terrifying mm. like heel hooks i can vaguely understand if you don't understand heel hooks if you work a desk job and you've never wrestled and a guy double legs you that's gonna probably break your back you know i think the older guys are scared of wrestling huh. it's hard to wrestle at 40 to learn wrestling at 40 is it yeah it's, yeah i mean i think it's even just hard in general to do wrestling at 40 but it's easy to pull guard pull half guard in the gear at 40 I think it's hard to do judo at 40, and people still do it at 40. Judo hurts more. I, I, judo is scarier than all of them. Yeah. I think, does wrestling really hurt at 40? Uh, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know why I'm years. looking at you. <laughs> yeah. It does. Interesting. I mean, I, feel, I agree okay. with you saying that uh, judo looks like the most dangerous. Like, even their, their practice partners, they're just getting slammed flat. Mm -hmm. Bueno. Yeah, I did. I mean, I did judo for a really long time. There's a lot of people that are 40, 50, 60 do judo. And they get they're the ones that are still alive though <laughs> <laughs> it's true uh survivor bias you do a little bit of uh judo right me i'm a yellow belt you're a yellow belt in judo i should be an instructor <laughs> promote <laughs> I, you to orange i got a yellow belt in the sixth grade i believe it was the sixth grade i did it for about i don't know six months but you're also using uh judo in uh competition basically aren't right, you doing like harai type throw like you're doing uh yeah, I don't know where Chimata. I learned that. I just started doing it. You just started lifting your leg in various ways until it worked? Just figuring it out, yeah. Okay, doing di different kinds of trips. I looked at the Sambo guys doing it. I was like, it can't be that hard. Yeah. yeah. Gave it a crack. Well, they, they looked at your <laughs> footlocks and they said, that can't be that hard. They, they said, can't be that hard. Ban it from the tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, what do you think is the best uh, takedown in uh, Nogi Jiu-Jitsu? Like what, uh, like if people were trying to train for competition and so on, like where you see the trends heading? I think those foot sweep is like catching fire nowadays. See a lot of, a lot of foot sweeps, uh, foot sweeps and arm drags, I would say pretty pretty popular in our sport. Arm drag, just, just go arm drag to, the, okay. Arm drag either to get them, like get to uh, behind them or even just to cause reactions, make them pull away and we can start reattacking. Are you talking about it in a context of what's the best takedown to score? What's the safest takedown to mitigate the risk of guillotine submission? Or most effective in general? Yeah, most effective combined. combined. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think it's about scoring. I think any sort of uh, body lock. You know what I mean? Locking your hands around the body, you've been able to put them to the floor that way. I feel like that's most effective, safest. Might even have arisen out of a leg attack, a leg entry, upgrade to the body. What about uh, like foot sweeps, like outside foot sweeps? Or like what? What do we? I would say, yeah, you know, uh, foot sweeps from outside foot sweeps, or even like something like you're tossing a point by and you're sweeping the foot. Yeah, those are all pretty safe. See, why is that scary? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. It's not scary at all. I think it's the lifts that are scary. The lifts, yeah. Who's lifting people? I like, I like a good lift return. No, not you. I mean, in master, like um, we're talking about older oh. guys doing no gear. Some of those old bosses take it very serious. You they know? just start lifting. TRT worlds. TRT worlds. They're coming. They're coming <laughs> they to impress. Grab and lift. All right. Just just for the gram. Okay. Uh, what about submission? What's your favorite submission? And what do you think is the most effective submission? Except the buggy choke. Uh, I would have to say the rear naked. It's definitely the one that's hit the most in the uh, the highest level of competition. Was that uh that was pretty interesting to see you escape all of that and to put put it on. That's the cool thing about EBI to see like the world class athletes. I was surprised that it's possible to escape with you on his back. Gonna try some B cream. Oh yeah. B cream? That the helps. <laughs> <laughs> what's in the B what's the formula or is that a secret? That is a proprietary blend for sure. Okay. Uh, but that's what you use for greasing. That's what you greased Allegedly. before. Allegedly. Allegedly. Um, does he have other application outside of grappling? Or I mean, I'm sure you can get creative. All right. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Asking for a friend. Is that RNC for you as well? Rear naked? Uh, rear naked choke. I mean, overall favorite for like solidifying a finish because like you can push, you can put somebody to sleep, right? Even yeah. if they, they don't want to attack, put them to sleep. But as far as like something I've been working on now that I'm, I'm now starting to implement in competition, Yoko Senkaku side triangle is like, it's a beautiful thing. You have multiple options. You have the triangle to finish. If that fails, you have the Komori. You could break the arm. You could also just transfer and take the back. So Yoko Senkaku, I'm a big fan of, and I continue to progress and get better at it. Have you ever broken anyone's arm? Oh yeah, I mean the first first few competitions because I was like you know pretty athletic grappler or athletic wrestler going against like local black belts and brown belts. Like my one of my first matches, I broke somebody a Kimura. Um, pretty much every time I've got a heel hook, which is only twice I've broken an, an opponent. Um, if I have a joint lock, it, it's probably gonna break. Like a lot of times, it breaks before they tap. <laughs> yeah, you seem like a really friendly fella. How hard is it to break an arm or any break a joint? Well, I don't think it's that hard. I think, um, like, if you're talking like an about an armbar, we have this position to where like people are kind of holding on, holding on, and then it slips and their arm starts going, sure. and then it just just breaks before they even you know get a chance to tap. I love the sport. I knee barred a guy and he didn't tap one time, and it was actually it yeah. was surprising. I had to put a lot of force into that, as opposed to arms, shoulders, and the ligaments in the knees and ankles, but to fully. This kid, Sambo kid, mm-hmm. fully let it go. And he tapped it out. I think the angle is like up here. They're built different. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully he can be reconstructed. He's rebuilt different. different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, what about a straight foot lock? You've ever, do you guys do straight foot locks at all or no? Uh yeah, I mean I'm learning them now. We had some kid come come into practice one day and like fucking <laughs> full lock all of us dude. With a straight full lock. Straight full lock. Just this little like Polish kid. Not kid. only did he full lock everyone, but he told the entire world 
Send <laughs> <laughs> out fucking emails. Include <laughs> his friends and family. Uh, Dude, we pra- we practically put a hit out on him in practice, and he just sold everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's always interesting when you get like, yeah, people that specialize can surprise you that this could be effective stuff. Uh, do you think there's other stuff that could be still discovered in jujitsu? Like what what areas do you think are ripe with uh, techniques to discover? Like wrestling is really interesting now. There's a lot of innovation happening in wrestling. I think there'll be more innovation when uh, we get people that are more adamant about standing up from bottom position. I think if we get more of the community, they're like, all right, I want to get off the bottom. I think just stand up. Just stand up. How jiu-jitsu doesn't work. We actually changed the name. How Sambo doesn't work if you just stand up. Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll change it to jiu-jitsu when I pirate it and send it for free to the entirety of the Soviet bloc. <laughs> hey, Nicky Rod, do you think ego is useful for martial arts or does it get in the way? Okay, I think you need to use it uh, in both ways. Um, for sure, have an ego, like if you're if you're training competition mode, <laughs> um, but also it can prevent you from learning and progressing if your ego is too high. Like you really have to shut the ego down when you're in the mode of learning and trying to you know develop skills because you're gonna put yourself in these bad positions. You're gonna have issues with a. a training partners that aren't necessarily you know up to up to your skill level but because you're in these bad positions you have to make these certain sacrifices and for sure ego can be a good or bad thing but if you're able to shut the ego off and learn then that'll have huge progression when it's time to put the ego on into use during competition when's the last time you put uh shut the ego off (laughs) it's been a long time (laughs) (laughs) what about you craig do you uh do you i mean you you seem to be super easy going is there like, is the ego just not part of it? Oh, for sure. I just don't want anyone to know they've damaged my ego. You know, we have to suppress it deep okay. down. There's a child underneath all of it crying, <laughs> always. <laughs> for sure. I think ego is good for a bit of perseverance, you know? Like, it'll help you stick it out against a, a tough battle with a training partner, for sure. If a bit of ego's on the line. Plus, the banter back and forth, we're trying to, like, stir each other up a bit. Uh, talk I think, shit, yeah. I think that helps hone, sharpen the ego a bit. Uh, what about you? Do you try? Do you seem like a super humble guy? Is there like a monster underneath? Oh, so it's a total act. <laughs> it's an act. Yeah. Uh, I, I Who's in the basement? Think, <laughs> I think uh, ego's a, a big motivator. Um, you know, I think it's very good to have in the aspect that it like it'll drive you to help to to want to be one of the best in the world. Um, but like Nikki Rod said, you need to be able to turn it off in the training room and you know force yourself into bad positions where you may not be winning. Uh, are there like, uh, you know, Don Hurs mentioned Boris. Uh, are there like grapplers, like Boris, this is a question from Reddit actually, uh, Boris-like characters, anybody you've trained with in the past who doesn't compete but is just an absolute beast in training? Like people you've met that are just like... Well, somebody that I think has a, probably the best like submission grappling in in MMA, I think like Gilbert Burns is is a is a his submission grappling. is mean, very very good. I trained with him early early on in my grappling career, and I was really impressed by his ability to to move, hold down opponents that are trying to stand up. And as a whole, you know, he can he can get submissions and put people away. Have you? When's the last time have you trained them recently or no? No, it's been a few years. Which is impressive uh, ability to submit. You're saying. Yeah, like, I mean, you know, you would see, I'd see Gilbert go against a few, like, pretty decent black belts in the room and, and fare well, and, you know, maybe he gets to their back, puts a choke in, and it's like, Gilbert's super high-level uh, grappling or submission grappling. 
Yeah, but he's pretty widely recognized as a, as a monster. So I don't know. That, you didn't really answer the question. It's, it's like you're not even listening remember anymore. The, what was the question? <laughs> <It doesn't matter>. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, what are, uh, there, is there? Is there people like you've done all these seminars? Are there just especially in in the in the Eastern Bloc that you've uh, seen? Yeah. Like you went to Kazakhstan. Is there killers out there that? Oh yeah, there's tough guys out there. Obviously, I I don't remember the names, nor could I pronounce it if I did. But yeah. definitely some uh, tough guys out there. Obviously, carrying skill sets over from from wrestling for sure, not sambo, but wrestling. <laughs> wrestling, but yeah, are there, are there just people that surprise you that just don't compete that are really good? Are there? Have you met those? I feel like it's less so today because there's so many so many more athletes in the sport. But definitely when I was coming up back like in Australia and stuff, there were guys I'd train with that wouldn't compete, and that would be like super tough rounds for me. Yeah, and there's so many more avenues for competing in general. So, yeah. Um, what about you? Have you met some monsters? <laughs> yeah, uh, one guy I could think of in particular is uh, Jason Rao. He's uh, he trains uh, up in Long Island, I think. Right, uh, opened up his own gym out there. Um, Vanguard. Yeah, Vanguard. He used to compete, but he would never be able to compete at the same level he would train at. So now he's just focused on mainly, you know, opening up a, a, a gym and and teaching his students. Uh, but he was a guy that was, you know, extremely good in the training room, you know, world-class. I still think to this day, he's, he's legitimately one of the best in the world, uh, but just doesn't compete anymore. Who wins in a fight, a lion or a bear? Polar bear? This is for you, right? No, not a polar. Well, yes, it's a good question. See, you're all, you know, polar bear is pretty impressive. No, grizzly bear. Grizzly bear. I think a grizzly bear wins. Well, what's the most threatening predator in Australia? Well, Kangaroo? I mean, it's a tricky question here because everyone's scared of the animals in Australia, but I mean, you get bitten by a snake, bitten by a spider. True. That's not that bad. Bear, America, bear will just hold you down and eat you. That's a much more terrifying prospect for me. Even sharks, sharks going to be quick. No one sees the shark coming. The shark's just going to bite you in half. A bear will take a bite and chew. And a bear just holds you down and eats you. That's uh, that's frightening for me. Australia is a bunch of just weird shit that can kill you. Did you see Cocaine Bear, the movie that's coming out? I saw the trailer. It looks good. Yeah, yeah. So there's not every bear. There's like black belts and there's black belts. There's bears and there's bears. So that, I think that's what they often don't talk about. Everybody puts lions and bears in the same category. I think there's just some weak bears. A lion would kill a black bear, I think. Not every black. Again, I'm trying to tell you. There's there's difference. <laughs> <laughs> but grizzly and polar bear, I'm betting on those. Yeah. No, I think grizzlies have the size, but actually every video I've seen of grizzlies, they tie out within like 20 seconds. They get bored. That's the gas tank? Yeah, there's gas That's tank. a Nicky Ryan gas tank right yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> that's, all, that's all they got. Dream old. <laughs> and they try to just, uh, they try to just take a breather. Like there's these crazy fights between bears and they last like 20 seconds. I heard this story about a, a Russian family that was attacked by a bear in Russia and uh, killed the dad. And it took, so, it took so long to eat the daughter, she made three phone calls to her mom while I was eating her. And the first call, the mom thought she was pranking her. That's crazy. That's way scarier than what yeah, we that's got there, Give me that's a snake bite any day. Food. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Let me let me change the question. Is um, like If you had to uh, fight a bear or a lion, how would you try to defeat it? Do you think you have a chance at all? Well, I think I'd uh, I'd attack a lion a little bit differently than I'd attack a bear. <laughs> what would be the difference? Okay. Well, I've seen this video where um, 
a lions are eating and and uh, you have three like scrinny guys walk up behind them and kind of scare the cat off of yeah. off of their food. I think uh, maybe I produce some props, scare the line away, right? But if I have to fight it, um, if I have to fight it straight on, I mean, the thing is that you can't, even if you take the back, like you can't like bite it or choke it. The mane is too big to lock your hands around, you know? Are you sure about that? No, the mane is just hair. Yeah, the mane is hair. It's thick hair. It's like, it's like matted hair, right? I don't know. So I think. Do you think you can maintain back a draw on a line? Maintain, yeah, yeah. But get, but, but getting there, getting there, I think I fake high, go low. Right? Make them think I'm going for the foot or something, a little paw sweep, and I take the back. Uh, what about a, what about a back? Bear. I feel like they're easier. That might be easier to take um, to hold back control. Yeah, but maybe the thing is, if they if the bear falls on its back, it's just gonna crush. It's so it's so big, it's substantially bigger than a lion, right? Like a uh, yeah. full grown. And they're grizzly. also like terrifyingly like loud with their roars and stuff. Yeah, I think uh, I think so. First of all, if I saw a grizzly, I'm like, all right, he's gonna attack me. I try to yell a little bit louder than them, maybe the the term a little bit, like give him a. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, and then uh, yeah, for sure, I try to get behind it. I probably go like. Uh, something weird maybe like pull the eyes out or something you know <laughs> for sure i mean i'm going for the vital organs you know i'm play like, dead play dead and then we'll check it <laughs> there's no there's no pride in that <laughs> wow pride even matters see the ego the same advice you gave you got to put the ego aside with the bear <laughs> even then even then uh would you how would you fight a, a bear or a lion just play dead play dead yeah could you beat a kangaroo? That joke? A kangaroo. Uh, oh, yeah. Kangaroo? Yeah. I'd beat the shit out of kangaroo. <laughs> you reckon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd bo- I mean, are we, are we boxing gloves? We just like... How would a kangaroo attack a human? Try to kick him with the claws. Knock him down, kick. and then they choke him. Stand on that tail. <laughs> the kangaroos do? They choke human? each other, yeah. Uh, yeah. They don't choke each other. You don't believe me? <laughs> you want to watch a video? They choke each other out. <laughs> I've seen this, yeah. <laughs> How? Yeah. Is it real? Yeah, yeah. yeah. With which? Well, they like do with headlock this... or what? Yeah, they knock him. And hold, just grip like this and hold it. What's them. the grip? What they have, the they have like little paws? How are they gripping? I promise you, I'm not lying. To you. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen the video. They also do <laughs> yeah. strange shit. Like if there's a predator around, they'll wait in a pool of water, and then if it comes to attack, they drown it. They're pretty smart. <laughs> uh, okay. Speaking of which, what's the most effective martial art for winning a street fight? You talked about rule sets and streets. I think you've talked about being a street. Have you ever been in a street fight? Yeah, just one. Yeah. Nothing special, nothing crazy, hey. Yeah, you don't talk about that time. Like for self-defense purposes, what would be a strategy on the street? I What's feel advice? Like whoever wins the street fights, whoever's willing to take it the furthest, the fastest. You know what I mean? If you're thinking you're going to box and he's biting you, poking your eyes, that guy's going to win. He yeah. wants it more. You know what I mean? That's why the crackheads fight. <laughs> they go for the kill straight yeah. away, you know? So I feel like it's more about who's willing to do the most that's going to win that fight fastest the most fastest who's got the least to lose you know okay we could also define winning differently because you could also run away that's but true. in terms of technique wise wrestling judo i think if it's a one on one i'd go i'd go wrestle wrestler wins but if it's like a you know it's like a multiple people you got to go muay thai stay on your feet can't go down to the ground if it's more than one person yeah, big double leg, maybe. Yeah, double leg, put him asleep on the on the impact, right? Forehead to the ground. Yeah, what's the goal here? Is to win the fight and not go to prison? Um, I haven't thought of it through <laughs> that way. Yeah, certainly, yeah. 
Yeah, not go, not not the, not the guilty. We got person. mutual combat here in Texas. We're good. Is that in Texas? Mm-hmm. Do you know if, what the paperwork for that looks like? Do you have to actually sign something? Or can uh, you just say? I hope I don't need to find out. <laughs> <laughs> I heard, uh, I did hear a story where guys were on Sixth Street and they looked at a cop. They were like mutual combat, mutual combat, yeah. and just got like the the cops to say yes and just duked it out. That could be false though. <laughs> that sounds crazy. <laughs> <I'm saying. laughs> I, I kind of admire that, but I've also been playing Red Dead Redemption recently, so mm-hmm. I've like internalized the cowboy a little, a little too much. Just to return to gym stuff. No, because it's a business. Because you're running a business, there's money involved, but you're also friends. Uh, but you're also training partners. Is there um, a tension that money creates that can, threatens to destroy friendships? That's something I always worry about with money. I try not to go do any kind of business with friends or family. I think yeah. if it were all very clear and honest and open at, at the start, it makes it much easier. Um, I think people have issues when there's like kind of like things are written in fine print and nobody knows the exact answers. And a lot of jujitsu guys can't read. Yeah, that yeah. makes it. That makes we're it learning that well. today. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, um, <laughs> definitely complicated though. Yeah, I mean it's it's not always obvious to how to be transparent and stuff and, and uh, about everything. Um, have you felt that tension? Because in the jiu-jitsu world, money's not really unlimited. Just running a school, what's that like? Because it's the first time you're running a school, running a gym. Yeah, I mean it's just constantly updating people about what's going on, what your expectations are. You know what I mean? We've had some problems with coaches who I feel like think the pie is bigger than it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? They feel like uh, maybe we're getting rich out of this and they're missing out on things. So it's like even amongst managing staff, that can be challenging too. So yeah, I mean, it's a constant work in progress to make, not only to make sure everyone's happy, but to make sure they're comfortable enough to reach out and tell you they're unhappy. But I feel like those challenges are common amongst any small business. Still, it sucks. Uh, just to mention... I'm I'm clueless to this, but I'm just now learning this. Uh, somebody I met and talked to, and I really like is Isaac. And yeah. I just <laughs> learned because you're also active on Reddit. What's your name on Reddit? It's, uh, I think it's John, John, John Belushi's mom, as undercover as possible, you know. Oh, it's not you. It's uh, it's actually it's actually John Belushi's mom, right? Uh, <laughs> so I did, I've I've done my research, I guess, and I guess you guys had a, had a falling out and have split. I just want to say that. I don't know, the few interactions I've had with him, he's a beautiful human being. So and that just shows to me. Visually, when, maybe not internally. And sexually, yeah. and just, <laughs> just the experience. That, no, uh, he's just a kind person. I don't know. I, I liked him a lot. Like to me, in a business setting, um, yeah, tensions are created and it sucks. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I suppose money, uh, all the stuff that happened in the jungle aside, probably money had a role to play to create extra tension. Money and egos about like who is the leader, who is not the leader, it's tough. It's tough to manage that kind of stuff. I've seen it happen with jiu-jitsu schools a lot. I don't know exactly what, because it's like, there is also a hierarchy inside grappling jiu-jitsu schools, like people that are better or not. There's literally ranks, black belt and brown belt. There's like competitors that are better. I mean, I don't, it's a weird dynamic in which to operate. Because like usually, there's more politeness and like humanity, 
layered into the way a company works. But here there's just a bunch of, I mean, it's like violence laid on on, on display plus money. It's crazy. Is there something you could say to that? Like how you try to minimize or something you want to comment on Isaac? Yeah, I mean, it was unfortunate situation, but it just didn't work out. You know, like there's going to be personality clashes. <clears throat> Some people. Uh, I can't imagine anyone having a personality clash with you. With me? Yeah. It's hard to imagine. <laughs> yeah, surprising. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't even know what to say on that. I don't want to touch on it too much, but obviously his expectations about his role in the gym, obviously different from ours, uh, led to some personality clashes that were sort of unresolvable. You know, some things happen that can't be resolved. You can't fix those things. Yeah. You know, uh, obviously a lesson, I hope for both of us, definitely a lesson uh, for me from a management role to try to address these things sooner. But also sometimes I came up in a different time where there was no money, no opportunities. I had to pave that. I had to pave that way totally for myself, especially coming from Australia. Like uh, being a professional athlete in jiu-jitsu was not a thing. So I had to pave a lot of opportunities for myself. And I feel like sometimes, uh, oh, I don't know what the right word is. Sometimes people don't appreciate some of the ways you help them and they just think, feel like almost they deserve or are entitled to certain things. And that is very difficult to manage. But I think again, like we, we both see the situation different. I do hope he finds a better, a more comfortable place to train. But yeah, obviously I've known him for a long time, sort of like a, a brotherly relationship. So that's going to really make personal problems a lot worse when you're that close to someone, you know? I just hated that, like, I've seen in jiu-jitsu especially, but in other places where, like, close friendships were destroyed because of, like, gym stuff. Like, people running gyms. And it just, as a person who is, in this case, just a fan, but in, like, in general, just like a student, it's like, sucks. But, again, in my position, sometimes I wonder if there really was a friendship or mere opportunity. I have to be careful of that with some people in the sport. It's that tough, like, yeah. Is it a sincere relationship or like, I mean, it's difficult for me to tell or am I means to an end? Sure, but I think it's actually a trade-off because I think a lot of close friendships we have, like even relationships we have, like when tested, like can break if they're not properly communicated. Like some of it could be just misunderstanding of like for a prolonged period of time. Um, not, not, it's not explained through just like a lack of integrity. It's just like you, like you have to like talk through that shit. Like just be honest with each Take other. Take some MDMA and really MDMA, get down exactly. to it. Eh? Drugs solve everything. <laughs> you learn anything from this conversation. And I've actually haven't done MDMA yet. Uh, people say that that's something I would enjoy a lot because my brain is, I think, natural on MDMA. Um, I'd recommend it for sure. For sure. All right. Um, is that what you do with Gabby and Valentine? Okay, never mind. Um, <laughs> she drugs me. <laughs> in general, why does there seem always seem to be drama in the jiu-jitsu world? Like outside of outside of what's going on here, or is that just? Uh, I think it's universal to anything. Drama's everywhere, and then drama, drama rises to the surface. Drama makes the money. Yeah, I wish there was a little bit less. Uh, you've uh, you have a bunch of like we mentioned some of them. You have a bunch of instructionals out. What are some interesting things that uh, you're looking forward to, like exploring uh, in terms of teaching? So just stand up is your most recent one, right? 
Yeah, you also have one called Power Bottom, an inclusive modern approach to the garden. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> uh, what, what are some other what are some other ones? False reap allegations. False reap allegations, yeah. Oh. By the way, people talk about Power Bottom, again, hilarious title, but they say it's a really good instructional, unlike the guard. Yeah, I try to I try to at least be innovative, you know, like everyone else I feel like's ripping off John and Gordon, putting some sort of slants on that. So I'm trying to take sort of a different approach. Uh I think you can actively influence the sport with what you release because people are going to try to emulate that. So I think that's those type of instructionals just end up power bottom, like approaching the sport differently, I think definitely has a positive inf- impact on the how people play the game. Are you working on something now? Probably a fundamentals uh, course, just because we're bringing out, we've got the white belt program coming in. So I'm trying to th- develop a fundamentals course along the line of the constraint-based learning stuff we were talking about today, like a way to approach learning as a beginner to sort of speed up the process a bit and not make it as so technique dense, at least have it a bit more fun. And focusing in on just like examples of problems to solve. Exactly, yeah. Approaching jujitsu learning that way. Like, I mean, kids learn quick through games. I think adults are capable of that to a certain extent as well. You're releasing that instructional on... um Pre-match preparation. Yes. What other, what other stuff? Do you ever think on a body uh, on body lock pass? Yeah, I have a I have a body lock or ratty lock DVD okay. or instructional. Um, yeah, I have the pre-match ritual coming out. I also have um, I'm filming uh, how to build athleticism for grappling. Um, just really trying to capture different angles, kind of like the same, you know, what Craig's doing. Uh, try not to do the same thing that everybody else does, you know. There's a ton of wrestling, ton of uh, jujitsu instructional instructional. So, and the steroid. Results are coming in. Oh, yeah, yeah. More plates, more dates. You know, Derek yeah. that runs that um, hit me up for a blood panel test, like a, an impromptu thing. And uh, I did it a few days ago, and I believe the results will come out shortly. Oh, yeah. I Do you know the results? What are you betting on, Lex? <laughs> what do you think? It's hard. It's hard to believe. Huh? Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's very very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> You're putting me in awkward position here. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you do you think you'll face Gordon soon? Um, I'm open to it. I don't know. I don't know what, how soon. Maybe in the next six months, I could see me facing him before uh, ADCC Worlds. I think that's a great rivalry. I think it's a really interesting one. It's fun for me. <laughs> um, is there any chance that the, the the two, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, get back together? Um, the DDS under whatever name gets back together. No, absolutely not. Highly unlikely. I mean, we kind of did this to, you know, um, to back up Nikki Ryan and, you know, we're sticking with our guy. So what, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I think there's just too many personality conflicts for it to, to really ever work again. Do you think there will always be war in the world? War? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think from the from the beginning of time, it's it's been you know some kind of war, some kind of battle, controversy. It's what what helps people evolve. Uh, until AI, super intelligent AI, becomes way more powerful than humans, and humbles all of us with its power before it destroys us. Well, until it runs out of batteries, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are screwed. <laughs> Unplug it. I'm really fortunate to be able to hang out with you, to train with you. Uh, and thank you so much for talking today. <laughs> All right. That's the best ending.
Thanks for listening to this conversation with Craig Jones, Nikki Rod, and Nikki Ryan. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from Miyamoto Musashi. You must understand that there's more than one path to the top of the mountain. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.